just like a lunatic on the street. Thank you, Rod Serling. Can you help me out? I'm quite rich. This just made me want to eat cake. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's about as mysterious as a bucket. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. Sometimes you can spend too much time on a one-sided love. I don't think so. I'm going to keep on loving you. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. And I give you nothing in return. I know. It's great. (laughs) Welcome back, cousins. Uh, We have yet another scintillating recap for you this week. Indeed. Before we get to that... We would like to announce this week's Cousin of the Week. Oh, boy. I know. It's very exciting. It's Cousin Stephen Cortez, but we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> Greetings from Detroit. Even here in the heart of the thug life, Downton Abbey and subsequently your podcast has its cousins. This is a long one, so buckle down. Just finished cleaning my house while listening to your season four podcasts, and kudos on making such a borderline sleep-inducing couple episodes ten times more entertaining. I used to run slash occasionally think about my own Downton blog on Tumblr. I don't know if you'd ever stumbled across it, but it was a worryingly Thomas-centric blog (laughs) aptly named A Barrowful, and I ran it with love for, I think, a couple of years now? It's sort of died now because there's not really enough interesting Thomas things to sustain it, and I also sort of skimmed season four because I didn't care. You may be wondering why I decided to make a Thomas-only blog when he was at the time I started watching, which was just finishing up season two, a horrible bastard with no redeeming qualities. Well... I'd gotten drunk. (laughs) The blog mainly consisted of posting pictures and various fandom-created miscellany, but I also did quite a few in-depth analysis and theories posts. I also had a few discussions with other fans on the Downton Gabby podcast. Excellent stuff, that one. And while I was listening to your coverage of episode two of series four, you brought up the subject of how Robert responded to Thomas's homosexuality and the arguments about how that was treated. Back when this was still actually relevant, I posted a theory of my own about why I thought Robert reacted the way he did. I realize this is a pretty random point to focus on in the whole two-hour podcast, but I've always been interested in sexuality and the many different ways it's been treated throughout different cultures at different times, and Downton Abbey is no exception. Listening to you guys reminded me of the issues I often had with how Downton approached Thomas's sexuality, or more importantly, avoided it. Thomas drew my interest because he is a tragic character, but he's also a raging ass bag. And I'm pretty sad to see fellows consistently skimp on information regarding Thomas's life as a gay man. We get bits here and there, of course, but most of it's left to our imagination. Between the seasons, we're more or less left to believe that the man has had no sex life or romantic interest between the douche of Crowborough, the blind soldier, and Jimmy Kent. What? That's years. A decade, even. My thirsty ass can't go a month without trying to find a new squeeze, and my gaydar is more fucked than Thomas's is. (laughs) My plea to you is this. I've tried my best to figure out what's going on, but my knowledge of homosexuality in that time period in England is scant at best. I know you've done lengthy info barbs of it before, but I'm asking specifically about a guy in Thomas's position. He's in service, he knows how to deal with the high-class folk, but he obviously wouldn't have access to the same kind of circles or communities a man in the upper class would. Would it be possible for him to maintain any sort of relationship at all? And if a romance subplot were to happen between Thomas and someone who was in the same social class as he was, what would it be like? Are there any examples in history to be found. Thanks in advance for reading my rambling, and I'm eager to see the rest of the podcast through. Please ignore the email profile name, as I am not actually Stephen Cortez, the lovable but fictional pilot from the Mass Effect series of video games. (laughs) I am a woman, and I very much exist. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, cousin who shall not be named, (laughs) uh, for, for your telegram. 
yeah, I mean, the closest we've come to really getting into that issue of what Thomas's life actually would have been like would have been our coverage of Morris. Right. So if you are a cousin who is similarly curious... Uh, and you cousin Steven Cortez, that's not your real name. I don't know if you've listened to that, but definitely check that out. It's not right. quite the same. Right. Um, well, I mean, but it is, I mean, it's, but you know, the character in that is a professional person, which true. is closer to being in service. That's true. And I mean, reading actually about Ian e. Forrester's life will give you some sense mm-hmm. because he was longtime partners with a man who was a policeman. Right. So, I mean, you know, we can do some digging. I'm not sure how long it's going to take. Yeah. Well, uh, I would also say one thing to keep in mind too is that all of the servants were pretty much expected to not be having any relationship. Yeah, and then that's, I think, the thing, too, is that, I mean, despite the love quadrangle that will not die, oh, right. and, you know, Anna and Bates aside, yeah. servants were very much expected, as Helen Mirren so eloquently put it in Gosford Park, mm. or rather Julian Fellows. <laughs> yes. I'm the perfect servant. I have no life. Right. And that was what they were expected to do. And, I mean, yeah, I mean look- obviously things are changing in this time period. But it's still not like it was encouraged for any of these people to be having relationships. Right. I mean, I'm sure and we've things seen it with happened. both both Carson and Hughes at this point. Like they had one semi relationship like 30 years ago, yeah. each of them separately. And then they were and, like, "Bye." Yeah, and they've they've been single ever since. Mm-hmm. Fabulously single. <laughs> yeah, might yes. I add? That's very true. Yeah, so we'll uh, we'll try to do a deeper dive on that. It may not be part of our coverage proper on this season. Yeah, uh, well, it just, doesn't seem to be coming up. Yeah, you know, for one thing. I mean, you know, exactly. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, but thank you for uh, reaching out and definitely check out a barrowful on <laughs> Tumblr. We'll post the link to Facebook and Twitter. And if you would like to throw your hat in the ring to be cousin of the week, please send us a telegram. We're up yours downstairs at gmail dot com. On Twitter, we're at five, the number five, Maggie Smiths. And on Facebook, just search up yours downstairs. And there we will be. There we will be. Absolutely. And before we start, we would just like to remind everyone we are raising funds for RAIN, Rape, Abuse, Incest uh, National Network, mm-hmm. for survivors of rape, incest, and sexual abuse. So if you want to throw a couple of dollars that way, that would be fantastic to support the work that they do. We'll repost that link as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's all of our housekeeping. Well, okay. Time to do the grizzly bear. <laughs> and by that, we mean recap this episode. Yes, very much so. So I just want to start by saying, has anyone redone the Downton credit sequence with horror movie music? <laughs> because watching it, it looks like it's a haunted house. It does. Being maintained by unseen spirits. Oh, right. A bell rings by itself. A yeah. duster levitates. <laughs> To dust a chandelier. A door and a window mysteriously open. A leaf falls off a plant. A dog's butt is shown in close-up. <laughs> Horror! Indeed. So uh, if that hasn't already happened, let's make that happen. Here, here. Yes. Fittingly enough, the uh, show opens with a lonely figure walking the fields of Downton. Uh, and it's it's Anna. She it cuts to, we see her downstairs shining some shoes and Bates comes in and asks why she didn't wait for him, why she went ahead. Uh, she says that she wanted to finish the shoes before breakfast. Uh, Bates asks again if he's done anything, and Anna says he hasn't, and nobody's done anything, and leaves. She's not doing a very good job of lying. No. At all. It's true. But, you know, no. In the servant's dining hall, uh, Anna comes in and Thomas asks what happened to her. Right. And Mrs. Hughes says to leave her alone. And Anna says that she fell and then has to sit next to Mr. Green. Yeah. Which is 
horrifying. Yeah. Again, horror. Yeah. No, this is, yeah. Carson instructs the guest servants to ask for Alfred or James if they need any help carrying things for their masters and mistresses. They would be glad to help. Causing the very cheeky Jimmy Kent to say, cheekily, good to know, which amuses Thomas. Right. And they, uh, they had a little, like, yeah. shared a moment They're like, there. oh, remember when you were in love with me? Nope. <laughs> Anna abruptly stands up and excuses herself, even though Lady Mary hasn't rung yet. So when she is out of the room, Mr. Bates asks Mrs. Hughes how Anna was last night. And Mrs. Hughes just kind of fends him off and says, I'm sure I don't know anything you don't. Right. That was like Janice from the Muppets. It's just, <laughs> it's all over the place when I try to do Mrs. Hughes, y'all. Uh, it's, it's a journey we're all on. Yeah, we are companions on the journey. <laughs> Green continues to sit menacingly at the table. And uh, Bates says that Anna's always one to minimize things. Thomas then is like, what's the matter with everyone? This fine morn. Yeah, and Carson says that he thinks there's something rather foreign about high spirits at breakfast. I agree. Well, I think in this case, he meant like dirty Italians. And oh. you mean just uh, you don't understand why anyone would be cheerful yeah, in the like, morning. It's the morning. What's What's to be happy about? <laughs> Anyway, Carson gets up to go supervise everyone's departure. Uh, outside the servants' entrance, as people are packing up, Carson says goodbye to Mr. Gillingham, i.e. Green, and says he hopes he had a good time, and Green says that he shall remember the visit for a long time to come. Uh, and Hughes is there and sees this, and, I mean, you know, just looks the way you would imagine she would. You know, she's trying to glare him to death, but unfortunately she does not have that ability. Yeah, I wish Mrs. Hughes was a dark Jedi. Oh, yeah, she could just strangle him. She could. It would be amazing. It would solve this whole problem. It really would. Use the Force, Hughes. (laughs) Give in to your anger. Oh, I don't think she has any trouble doing that. (laughs) That's true. She's pretty on top of that anger. At the main entrance, Lord Grantham is seeing everyone out. He says a very grateful goodbye to Gregson, and uh, he and Edith walk outside. And Samson is there and tells Gregson he heard that he returned the IOUs to their original owners and wonders if uh, Gregson might extend him the same courtesy. Gregson just laughs at him. Uh, and Edith asks if she should leave. Samson says that he sure Gregson's told her all about it. Edith asks Gregson to return Samson's IOU, and he says he'll do it just because Edith asked. But he warns Samson never to play for money in the clubs again. Samson looks quite downcast and wonders how he'll live. And Gregson says that he must find another avenue for his talents. And uh, there's pretty much no other avenue for being a card sharp, (laughs) and certainly not such a lucrative one. Yeah. Gregson's like, have you considered journalism? It's basically a scam. (laughs) Elsewhere in the front hall, uh, the Duchess is saying goodbye to Tom and says that he looks as if he's glad to see them go. And Tom is, of course, like, no, 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 you've been very kind to me. And the Duchess tells him that grief is odd. And when the Duke died, she became terribly clumsy and dropped things. And she said that it was because it felt disloyal to manage anything properly without him. You know what she could manage? What? Crime. (laughs) (laughs) Um... No, but I actually, I liked that little exchange there. Oh, yeah. No, it was very sweet, especially yeah. since, like, the last episode was such a downer in terms of Branson. Right, right. I mean, it's still kind of a downer. But, yeah. I mean, it was just, you know, it was just nice to see this, like, human moment coming out of this 
whole weird experience for him. Right. And that somebody remembers that he's a widower. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, oh, thank you. (laughs) You know, nobody in the family seems to even remember that Sybil was ever alive. (laughs) Just Lord Grantham wakes up one day. I say, (laughs) how did this show forget to this breakfast table? Did I used to have three daughters? Nope. Fair enough. It's like in Back to the Future, Sybil's just faded completely (laughs) from the photograph. Outside, Rose, wearing a smashing sweater, is walking with Bullock and is explaining that she's not out yet Mm -hmm. uh, for seeing him in London purposes. But he doesn't seem to think that that will be much of a problem, not in these fast-paced, modern, hedonistic days. It's uh, not like it was before the war. Absolutely. (laughs) Let's not start that again. Let's not. Carson laid off this episode. We should, too. Fair enough. No, and I'm wondering, when is Rose going to come out? Because she's not a virgin, but doesn't that automatically put you at the front of the line? <laughs> right. Like, well, we better hurry up. She's she's skipping steps. Yeah. yeah. Like, get her in front of the queen and get her married. You don't want to present her to the queen pregnant. Oh, no. The empire would collapse. <sighs> uh, green tells Gilly that they're all ready to go. Uh, Mary comments that she is glad that Gilly's well looked after. He says that he doesn't like Green very much, which is pretty convenient yeah. for the course of this plot line. But Mary says that he's just lucky to have anyone these days. You know, Mosley's around. <laughs> That's true. Just saying. He's desperate for a job. Although not in this episode. Yeah. Mosley free episode. It's like they're trying to shut down this podcast. <laughs> Mosley's our bread and butter. <laughs> it's true. We'll just have to fight through it somehow. I know. Uh, Lord Grantham is about to go say goodbye to Gilly, but McGee holds him back. She doesn't want him to interrupt them. Gilly asks Mary once again to meet him when she's in London, but she says, oh, no, I'll be too busy, and or he'll be too busy, and she'll be chasing her own tail. I don't even know what that means. Uh, I don't know either. Is Does that she the, have a tail? Is that the, the, the standard euphemism for negotiating with tax collectors? <laughs> <laughs> Potentially. It <laughs> could be. But Lord Grantham announces to everyone that they had better get started as they won't hold the train. And not even for the Duchess. Not these days. Like, oh, these... Like, <laughs> you that they won't hold trains for random people anymore? Yeah, you can't even flog the baggage handlers anymore? <laughs> My God! Right. Or just ask the conductor to take the train to a different city. <laughs> <laughs> Say, I've just remembered. I have a friend in York. Tell me. When does the flying pussyfoot arrive? <laughs> Isabel's walking through a cemetery. Right. That's all she does this episode is walk through cemeteries. It's like, no wonder you're depressed. Yeah. (laughs) She's walking through the cemetery and runs into Dr. Clarkson. Uh, He says that he has just been talking with the board about the merits of an out clinic. Yes. And he wants Isabel to help or get back in harness, which gross. Keep your weird BDSM lifestyle out of my Downton Abbey, please, Dr. Clarkson. Look, he's tried. He's really tried. No wonder he wears that bow tie. (laughs) She says she'll think about it. She promises she'll really think about it. It just occurred to me, though, she probably does go see Matthew's grave pretty frequently. Yeah, I guess that is probably true. That seems like a bummer, though. Yeah, which explains how Clarkson knew where to find her. I find that so odd. I don't know. I've never had anybody that was that close to me die. So maybe I will feel differently if and when that happens. Right. But it's just like I don't see 
a ton of, I mean, I guess, you know, we have TV now and stuff, mm-hmm. so you can grieve while being entertained. <laughs> but. <laughs> right. <laughs> she just had a television. She'd forget all about Matthew. That's not my point. I my know. point is, you know, no, it's, no, no. it's I, I, no better I mean, I, or worse to me to go to the cemetery. I, I feel similarly, but likewise have never been through it. So who can say? In the library, Mary tells Branson that the tax people have an opening and can see them Wednesday at noon. Uh, so she thinks that they should go up tomorrow rather than risk being late on, uh, you know, spend the night and be raring to go. Uh, Lord Grantham asks if she wants him to come with them, and McGee quickly says, there's no point in you all going. Also, I can't decide if I love or hate what she's wearing in this scene. Yeah. It's like this weird, like, Princess Leia-looking thing. The costume designer must have, like, just watched the Star Wars trilogy again. (laughs) I guess so. I'll say it looks better when she's sitting than it did when she's standing, because the pattern on it sort of is all the way down, like, almost below her waist. Gross. Yeah. Lord Grantham notices them trying to keep him away from this thing and asks if they're afraid that he'll put the case for selling, which I think they're more concerned that he'll accidentally sign the estate over to the French government or something. (laughs) But Tom points out that the tax people don't actually care how they raise the money. They just want their money. Uh, Mary says she's just going to get the best terms and report back and they'll all decide together. Um, By which I hope they mean they're going to tie Lord Grantham up <laughs> and forge his sig- get Bates to forge his signature. <laughs> Just like knock him out with ether for like a week. <laughs> right. I bet Gregson could do it too. He probably could. Um, Everyone's more useful than Lord Grantham. <laughs> that is very true. Lord Grantham is like, oh, we'll be in debt for 20 years. I still be spending the rest of my life making payments. But he seems to, like, basically be resigned to Which, losing like, this. Which, like, shut up. <laughs> like, welcome to America, dick. <laughs> right. Rose walks in as Mary is telling McGee their plans that she's they're going to be staying with Rosamond, naturally. Uh, and Rose asks if she can tag along. Yeah, and, and everybody's fine with that, yeah. Uh, and McGee then casually asks if she's going to see Lord Gillingham while she's there. Oh, Gilly. Yes. And Mary says that she doesn't think so, and also not to be so transparent. It doesn't suit her. Uh, she also asks McGee to look after the children. Oh, uh, right. And I'm like, who? <laughs> yeah. You you do realize that they were stolen by gypsies. <laughs> <laughs> no, Edna put them in a cage and she's fattening them up to eat them. <laughs> They're sticking a bone out <laughs> so she doesn't think they're done yet. <laughs> Branson's walking through the front hall when Edna looms out of the shadows asking uh, why his daughter is still so sickly and not fit for witchy <laughs> consumption. Uh, actually, she asks why he didn't come down to see her right. in her room. Like, what? Uh, Tom says that he was very drunk. He's not going to deny it so apparently they boned yeah uh and he says that he blushes to admit how drunk he was which man look you're irish don't you am i ever (laughs) ever be ashamed of how drunk you are that is your heritage and your legacy that's no that's true anyway he says that if he behaved badly he's sorry which again not an irish trait (laughs) 
finally we get Thomas getting back to doing what he does best, overhearing things. <laughs> so he overhears Edna saying that Tom is ashamed of what he did, and Tom says he's not ashamed. He's just sorry. He says, I dare say we both are. Uh, wrong. Wrong. This is all part <laughs> of her incantation, and you are messing it up. Yeah. Like, Edna's been, like had her sights set on you for years mm-hmm. at this point like she ain't sorry. again for reasons that we don't understand right because he does not have any money <laughs> right uh, in neither th- does sibby it's all going to george yeah no that's true i don't know there's probably some provision for sibby since she's a blood yeah descendant, but like yeah i don't i don't know, know what it is he's like a salary man at this point yeah pretty much but uh he wears nice clothes he does wear nice clothes which is and I, I assume that if Edna did wind up marrying him, that she would, like, not have to be a lady's maid anymore and could just hang out. I guess so, but, but just, ugh. Oh, yeah. Like... She's awful. She is awful. On that, we can all agree. As in the kitchen, Alfred asks Ivy what she's making, and she says that it is filetes something like that i don't know how it was filetes filetes i don't know um french speaking cousins (laughs) please rescue us (laughs) right uh but it is puff pastry layers with asparagus yum yum i suppose you are weird for not liking asparagus Uh, that i am and daisy says that she's doing the hollandaise and nobody responds at the end of this season we find out that daisy's been a ghost the whole time (laughs) could be Edna conjured her up. <laughs> yeah. Also, I mean, come on. The hollandaise is the difficult part of that dish. Sure. I can layer asparagus on puff pastry layers. Anyway. Maybe she has to cut the asparagus really thin. Uh, that could be. I'm just being devil's advocate. I'm being Ivy's advocate here, which is weird <laughs> since I hate Ivy. Yeah, we all do. But uh, Jimmy Kent asks whether they really like that stuff upstairs or if they're just showing off. And Alfred says that we don't all have to live off battered fish and meat pies, which is You're that? in England. You do. It's, <laughs> it's written into the Magna Carta. <laughs> well, but beyond that, is that what they eat downstairs? Like, I... No, I think his whole point is that, you know, Jimmy likes to go out to the pub. Yeah, that's true. You know, he likes to eat the, the low-class food. And, you know, he's, he's making a distinction about the class difference. You know, they're, they're, class aspirations yeah and you know trying to align himself more with ivy right even though ivy don't give a fuck she's busy with her asparagus (laughs) she is which she is particularly so because this is the first big dish that uh miss padmore is trusted with Uh, and so she says she's nervous about that and as padmore comes in right then and says that she should be nervous mess that up and it's back to kindergarten ivy seems like much more of a preschooler to me (laughs) right i was gonna say actually kind of a toddler but i flunked out of kindergarten (laughs) (laughs) up in tom's room he's packing for the london trip and edna barges in and says he can't treat a poor girl like this and cast her aside and tom and us are like whoa (laughs) yeah you need to slow your roll. Like, yeah. even though we hate you, <laughs> like, if you want this to work, you God. need to, you need to calm down. So she, uh, immediately wants to know what he'll do if she's pregnant. Uh, first of all, Edna, I'm not saying I've ever done this, <laughs> but I am saying I've thought about it. <laughs> you can't 
lead off with what if I'm pregnant the day after. Right. Especially not in 1922. Yeah. People have at least figured out that there's something about the number 28. <laughs> They've, they're like, there's a, th- uh, weeks have to happen. <laughs> Even Tom says this. Right. But it's like, you, you need to, you know, come on. Yeah. That's like texting somebody that you've hooked up with, like, as you're walking home. <laughs> right. You know, like, you say, no, like, you say goodbye, you're on the front steps, and you're like, bye! Like, uh, ugh, the worst. Yeah. Anyway, Tom says that it's not as easy to get pregnant as all that, and she disagrees. They're both wrong somehow. <laughs> <laughs> right. Somehow they're both wrong on that one. Like, yes, Tom, you may not be aware of how Sibby was created. <laughs> uh, also, Edna... Like it's well, not I loved Sybil very much. It's also a lot harder to get pregnant than you think. Right. It's you know, it's really gotta be a perfect storm right. of semen. So <laughs> the porn parody of a perfect storm. <laughs> Starring Spooge Clooney. <laughs> oh my god. Uh Let's all put that out of our minds. (laughs) Let's. So Tom does point out that she won't know for weeks if she is pregnant, but she says she has to be sure that he'll marry her, which to me, I'm like, if you're pregnant, like, look, you're pregnant. Right. Like, call up, you know, Mrs. Douchman's abortionist. Deal with it. (laughs) So she says that if he, she says, don't tell me I'm not good enough for you, which is like, whoa, don't put words in his mouth. He would never say that to you. Right. But she says that if he was good enough for Lady Sybil Crawley, then she's good enough for him. And this is after she said she means to make a go of being his wife. Right. And I'm like, what does that mean? Yeah. Exactly. Like, you're going to blow him sometimes? Oh, right. Like, special occasions? I don't know. Like, I won't kill you? Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave you out of my hair wreath. <laughs> anyway, Branson snaps too and is like, don't speak her name. Yeah. And, and is like, you weren't so severe last night. And she's like, what's up? What if I'm pregnant? And he's like, whatever. And then she says she won't hold him back and he won't have any regrets. But he says he's already full of regrets. There's nothing but regret in me, which is the first time in this like new season or really since Sybil died that I was like, oh, I kind of feel bummed for you. Like, yeah, yeah. Or like that I just don't hate the character for abandoning his revolutionary roots. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I still do. But. Right, right. But that was that was a moment there. And, so. Yeah. And I mean, this is why she's been targeting Branson because she's always felt like that's the, you know, thing she could play off in him. You know, but she doesn't realize how completely he's forgotten his yeah. roots. <laughs> um, anyway, and, uh, you know, having been reminded that he's forgotten his roots, <laughs> leaves. Yeah. Uh, Isabel and the Dowager are walking through the cemetery. It looks like they just left church, which on a Tuesday? Also, nobody else is there. Was <laughs> it just for them? Well, I thought I saw a, you know, clerical looking guy kind well, of off in the background. maybe they were just meeting with, uh, you know, what's his name? Mr. Tibbs? What's his name? That's the, you know. No, I know what you mean. The yeah. the vicar's name. Yeah. He had a name. Tibbs? No, it's not. That's oh. the name of Sidney Poitier's character in, in The Heat of the Night. I know. Other people have had that name. Well, maybe. <laughs> they retired it after that movie. Uh, yeah, I can't remember what his name is. Yeah. He's around. Remember, he was a dick. No, I do. Re- no, I'm, I'm trying to remember, and we've, well, we've both failed. Cousins, do you remember the vicar's name? <laughs> Was it Mr. Tibbs? <laughs> if so, or if not, uh, right, we want way. to hear your story. 
Uh, so the dowager asks if Isabel enjoyed the concert. She says she did. And then the dowager um, sort of tentatively asks if she liked the evening generally. Uh, and Isabel admits that she did find it hard to see Mary come alive again, but that those feelings are not defensible. And the dowager says that they're defensible to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, Isabel says that she feels like she's being jealous and selfish. Uh, but the dowager says that if we only had moral thoughts, then what would the poor churchman do? Isabel says that she loves Mary and that her feelings make no sense even to herself. Uh, and the dowager says she's not criticizing either uh, either Isabel or Mary, uh, but she does hope that Isabel can sometime, can someday learn to make friends with the world again. No, and I like this side of the dowager countess. And I wonder, though, if it's because now that like maybe she was jealous that Isabel had a son who didn't suck as thoroughly <laughs> as hers. And now she feels like they're on the same level. Yeah. Um, no, but I mean, the dowager is old and she's dealt with death in a variety of ways. Right. I mean, we don't even know. She may have lost a child. Yeah. At some point. Yeah, certainly. You know, possible. like an in infancy or something. Right, right. Um, but yeah, it's nice to see these two getting along. Yeah. As much is. as I enjoy seeing them snipe at each other. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, they have made their peace with each other. Mm-hmm. And if and when they do snipe at each other, it's, they both, they're, you know, they're both on the same page. Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah. Golden Granthams <laughs> coming soon to Lifetime. <laughs> Up in Mary's room, Anna's doing Mary's hair. Mary asks if Anna would mind helping Rose as we can't take Madge off Lady Edith for the trip to London. So, uh, hey, Madge, where's Madge? Yeah. Free Madge. <laughs> That's right. But it's nice to get that mystery yeah. solved. So, Madge uh, is like, she's like the Maris of this show is. now. <laughs> Well, because Madge has been promoted, hasn't she? Wasn't she I a think, housemaid I before? Think you're right. Yeah, because I remember hearing about Madge. We all remember hearing about Madge. Yeah. Oh, well. She's uh she's saucy. <laughs> but no one's ever seen her. <laughs> she's the ghost that's dusting the chandelier in the credits. <laughs> right. And apparently like doing Rose's hair and stuff. Uh Anna doesn't respond at all to this uh question. Right. Uh Mary asks if she's all right cuz she's been very quiet and Anna faces away from her and asks if that will be all. Mary says she supposes so. Yeah. And then rather than doing that thing where she looks at herself in the mirror, she looks quizzically at the mirror. <laughs> yes. Not like at her own reflection, but just as if somehow the answer is floating <laughs> behind her somewhere. If only she could light her eyes upon it. <laughs> if only I was capable of turning around. <laughs> she can't. <laughs> Uh, in the Grantham's room, McGee tells Grantham that she telephoned Rosamond. Lord Grantham thought that Mary would telephone Rosamond, which makes sense, but uh, McGee wanted to speak to her. Lord Grantham is surprised that McGee would ever want to speak to Rosamond because she's kind of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but McGee has hatched a plot wherein Rosamond is going to give a little dinner. I think you mean give a little dinner. <laughs> that is what I mean, yes. Uh, and apparently Rosamond won't even mind if Tom wants to be included. Oh, my. Yeah. How open-minded she is. <laughs> Hold that thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and she's also going to ask that young man, meaning Bullock, for Rose, so that it won't be too obvious. These people need to look up what obvious means <laughs> right. in their dictionary. Well, because this leads to Lord Grantham, of all people, being like, it'll be pretty obvious. Yeah. Like, when Lord Grantham is the only one that can see what's going on, like... You're in trouble. Yeah. You need to reevaluate your choices. <laughs> yeah. It's unsettling to see him being on the side of reason. I know. Oh, he's just getting started. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, she says that she doesn't really expect anything to come of it, but she wants something to come of it. Because uh, being a family means welcoming new members. Don't you agree, Braithwaite? And Braithwaite is like, I cannot believe what a perfectly phrased question that is for me right uh-huh. now. Like, man, you would not believe the day I am having. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm, I'm about to be, be adding two family members. <laughs> two for the price of one. But yeah, she says anyone would be, want to be a part of this family. And McGee is like, oh, isn't that nice? Oh, my God. She's so stupid. <laughs> like, I know that what Braithwaite is doing doesn't really have anything to do with McGee. Right, right. But, oh, my God. <sighs> McGee, McGee is like a child in that, like, she just gloms onto whoever's closest to her without yeah. any consideration of the fact that they might be, like, a sociopath. Right. I mean, look at her, you know, decade-long relationship with O'Brien. We can't even get into that right well, now. We At dinner, Lord Grantham thinks that offering medical care outpatient wise will raise a nation of hypochondriacs, <laughs> which is the worst thing. <laughs> oh my god. Right. Well, I mean, it was the Obamacare of its day. Clearly, yeah. Uh, Isabel disagrees, saying that it encourages people to look after themselves and she's just going to go provide free labor. Right. Because she's independently wealthy and can go do that. <laughs> right. Uh, Lord Grantham then wishes he had some free labor, but uh, the Dowager Countess says that Lloyd George would never allow it. Because, you know, the damn liberals always outlawing slavery <laughs> right? and uh, imposing, like, you know, labor laws. I know. Also, Lloyd George had not been in power for, like, three years at this point. She really felt that deeply. <laughs> she really hates Lloyd George. Uh, McGee tells Mary and Rose that Lady Rosamond is looking forward to seeing them. Edith says, we use her like a ho- like an hotel, because that's how they say it. Right. But Mary yeah. says that uh, Aunt Rosamond enjoys it because it gives her a surrogate real life. And I'm like, I'm sure Rosamond's ears are burning with this delightful conversation that you're having about her. <laughs> Edith asks Tom what he thinks about it, but he has completely spaced out wondering how Sibby's going to react to this new witch baby. <laughs> right. And uh well you know at least his, his daughters are both going to be wicked little crossbreeds. That's right. You like know. one I would think more wicked than the other. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be like that Macaulay Culkin movie The Good Son. <laughs> so Mary wants to know what he was thinking but he just laughs and drinks some wine as if that wasn't what got him into this mess. <laughs> In the kitchen, Jimmy Kent asks to taste Ivy's dish. If you know what I mean. Ew. No, he, he wants... I don't, ugh. Sorry. Ugh. Well, look. look. normally I like euphemisms for oral sex, but I just... Ugh. Sorry. So, okay. He literally asked to taste her dish, uh, and he says that it's like eating paper. That metaphor keeps getting worse. <laughs> uh, Ivy is rightly offended. See, this is... He's been reading pickup artist books. He's nagging her. He is nagging her. Yeah. Oh, what a dick. Yeah. Uh, he asks if she really cares about this stuff, and she says that she does. She wants to get good at it and have a skill. Uh, Jimmy Kent says that she sounds like Alfred. And then she throws herself out of a window, and that's <laughs> the last we ever see of Ivy. <laughs> Anything but that! <laughs> right. Jimmy Kent does not want to develop a skill. He wants to see the world, meet beautiful women, and spend money and drink champagne. Uh, I think you're going to need to develop a skill in order to enable that fantasy to come true at some point. Yeah, it's called uh, 
being a scam artist. Yeah. I mean, I know he's tried the whole gigolo thing, which is fine, but it won't yeah. take you as far as you think. No, it really won't. No. I mean, yeah, you've really got to bring something to the table. Yeah. Like, at least come with like a fake credential for yourself and say you're some sort of like professor. Yeah. Harder than it looks. Just ask Deuce Bigelow. <laughs> European gigolo. Oh, that's right. <laughs> for all of your continental gigolo needs. <laughs> they made a sequel. <laughs> enjoyed that movie title because it's so redundant <laughs> yeah like as if there could be any other kind of gigolo right anyway yes jimmy kent wants fun and ivy wishes she was more like him and why i i don't know uh okay i i wasn't really asking yeah i was just trying to be amusing oh sorry. as is the you know nature of this <laughs> podcast fair enough uh anyway Jimmy Kent sees, an op- he sees his opening and moves in for a kiss, but of course Alfred stumbles in at that moment, and he says he's going to report them to Mrs. Patmore. Oh, and Daisy was with him, by the way. Um, so she's not pleased by this. Uh, but they both claim, they're like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. We are just, it was a, she had a thing in her hair, and I was just kind of reaching, and uh, uh, anyway, this whole courtroom's out of order. This whole love quadrangle's out of order. <laughs> it is. Uh, Mrs. Patmore comes in, and they all deny things to her, and she tells Ivy that she did well with the dish. Daisy says, they're not very hard. (laughs) (laughs) Which delighted me. (laughs) Mrs. Patmore says that they're hard enough for a beginner, as Daisy ought to remember. Uh, And Daisy says that Ivy moves fast for a beginner. (laughs) Bitch face. Yeah, then Mrs. Patmore is like, (laughs) (laughs) right. That's really what Ivy ought to be focusing on is getting her. That's what a cook is made of. That's true. Like without a solid, like look at Gordon Ramsay. Yeah, you know that's that's his entire career. Yeah, he's gotten mansions, like multiple mansions, out of doing that. (sighs) I want a mansion for yelling at people. Well, when is it going to be Kelly's turn? (laughs) I, I don't know. We got this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But it doesn't pay. (laughs) We might. There might be an eccentric billionaire listening that we don't know about. Mm, Maybe. But like this conversation alone was probably like that guy being like, well, if they never ask for money from an eccentric billionaire, I'll leave them my billions. And then he was like, ah, they ruined it. Well, I'm going to put it all into the Justin Bieber rehab fund. (laughs) Except, of course, for a bequest for my ferret. (laughs) In an upstairs hallway, Anna tells Bates that she'll just be gone to London for one night. Bates says that he'll miss her and puts his hand on her shoulder, and she pulls away very quickly and then apologizes and said that uh, she's just tired, that he's done nothing wrong. Uh, Again, protesting way too much. Yeah. He says that she he must have done something wrong because she won't talk to him or look at him. And Anna says that they're in each other's pockets. Uh, because they live together and they work together. And sometimes she thinks it too much. Yeah. Which, A, I understand. Right. And can uh, attest that will happen. Yeah. If you and your spouse are in the same place 24 hours a day. Yeah. You will uh, get very sick of each other. <laughs> and uh, at the same time, it's clearly not what's going on. And yeah. Bates is very sad and confused. Yeah. His Mr. Potato Head face is very droopy indeed. Yeah. He, is, he has put that smiley upside down <laughs> he has no it's 
it's you know it's sad i feel for him yeah and i usually don't right yeah we're very uh we're very team mates this episode y'all yeah yeah down in hughes's parlor uh carson has had a few <laughs> and he's finally ready to talk about alice oh, are we still talking about this i know right uh he says that someone uh, that we're never going we literally, literally by definition cannot ever see right except this one unless she faked her own death horrible so photo. that she could go and live a life of crime with the duchess <laughs> well she was uh the dove back in her theatrical the duchess days. and the dove that's yeah no that's not bad Come on. uh she had interwar been... batman <laughs> her she and her sister had collectively been the lark and the dove Yes, and apparently her sister had the voice, but Alice was a sweet and gentle soul. Which is which that? is really not lend itself to a life upon the stage, right? You've got to be kind of a ruthless barracuda. Yeah, and like, is that what the music hall audiences were looking for? Maybe they just wanted to look at a simpleton. Oh, hey, <laughs> show us your nice and gentle soul. <laughs> <laughs> Hughes asks if they were courting, and Carson says, well, you know, it wasn't like today. You, were- you mean like when Mrs. Hughes was also alive? <laughs> right. Idiot. Says you were lucky. You know, before the war. <laughs> no. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like the Sarlacc. <laughs> uh, he says you were lucky if you got them to walk you to the corner. Hughes asks if he wanted to marry her, and he says, so much I could taste it. I like, wasn't aware that weddings were an edible commodity. Right. And really, all you'd done was walk her to the corner a couple times. Like This just made me want to eat cake. Mm. I know, right? I wish we had some. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and Hughes raises her eyebrows at that declaration. He says, I know. Where is that young man now so full of passion? No, we were mainly concerned about your uh, you know, deep and abiding love for someone who barely talked to you. Yeah. Also, I guess your synesthesia or whatever. Yeah. Is that the thing where you like taste numbers or whatever it is? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. Also, by the way, the subtitles imply that where is that young man now so full of passion is a quotation from something, but Google didn't turn anything up. So if any cousins like know what that's from. I'd be I'd be interested. Uh, anyway, Carson says that Alice chose Charlie, and that was that. And also, she later died, so that was also that. <laughs> um, uh, and basically fills Hughes in on that whole scenario. Um, but he says it doesn't change anything. But Hughes says that from where she sits, it changes him. And I'm growing more concerned that... They're going to do something. No, man. They can't get together. They're platonic friends. Yeah. Like me and my friend Carlos. Mm -hmm. And we are just like buds. Yeah. And we like respect each other and stuff. Well, well, And we talk about relationship stuff. Yeah. But it's like we would never like want to like change it. Or plenty of people have work spouses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. And it's like philosophically they don't agree on anything. Yeah. Mrs. Hughes is a forward-thinking, you know, hep lady. Right. And Carson is an old fuddy-duddy stuck in back before the war. Yeah. Like, I, you know, she possesses compassion. Right. <laughs> He's a raging dick. Right. Carson gleefully kicked Molesley out into the street. Yeah. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, God knows what Julian Fellows is capable of. Uh, I'm not even sure God does. <laughs> I think God tunes into Downton Abbey every week like the rest of us poor suckers. <laughs> like, my, me. <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> this is your work, Lucifer. <laughs> and Satan's like, did I do that? <laughs> So you heard it here first. <laughs> Julian Fellows, puppet of Satan. Right. Little known fact, Satan, head writer on both Downton Abbey and Family Matters. <laughs> hey, he knows how to do it. <laughs> Anna knocks on Mrs. Hughes' parlor door and she comes in, sees Carson, who says that he will say goodnight. Once he is gone, Anna tells Mrs. Hughes that when she gets back from London, she wants to move back upstairs to her old room or, you know, a room. Right. Mrs. Hughes asks why, and Anna says that she can't let Bates touch her. Mrs. Hughes says, surely it wasn't uh, Mr. Bates's fault that this happened, and Anna says that that's the point, but she's not good enough for him anymore because she must have somehow made it happen, mm-hmm. which is very classic. Right rhetoric for a rape victim Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. well you know because when you are put into a powerless situation you immediately want to rewrite your narrative so that you had some kind of control right exactly um oh i really appreciate that they're depicting that part of it yeah very realistically yeah um and mrs Hughes says that you know she was attacked and there's no sin in that but Anna says she feels dirty and she just can't let Bates touch her. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Hughes stands up and takes her hands and, and says that she thinks that they should go to the police. Anna says no. I also say no. Generally, like now. I mean, I, I, right. I, I like rationally, I want more people to report their rapes. Right. But the way that the justice system handles you is so horrifically bad. Right. And well, you're it's just, just so... It's, it's a prisoner's dilemma. Like, if everybody came forward and, mm-hmm. you know, was, was you know, aggressive and open about it, then everybody would be better off. But if only one person does it, then they get all the, the abuse. Exactly. And it doesn't help. Mrs. Hughes asks what Anna will do if she's with child, which, fingers crossed, please, 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 no. Right. Uh, but Anna says she will kill herself. Yeah. And Mrs. Hughes says she won't listen to that and that no man should be able to do what Green did and get away with it. And then Anna, pretty sassily for someone yeah. in the throes of very early stage PTSD, yeah. uh, she asks if Mrs. Hughes will come with her to the prison when Bates is hanged for killing Green. And Mrs. Hughes says that Mr. Bates's heart is breaking for not knowing. And Anna, again, sassily says, better a broken heart than a broken neck. Yeah. And then asks again for a room. And Mrs. Hughes says, okay, but she has to wait until there's a reason that she can give Bates. But she wishes that she would decide to tell him the truth. Right. So she asks Anna then to try to take a break from this while she's in London. And Anna says that there can't be any break from it. Right. This is the kind of thing that lives in your head and follows you wherever you go. Yeah. At, presumably, the outpatient clinic, Isabel meddles around, um, and Clarkson comes in and is like, hey, uh, this is Mrs. Pegg and her daughter, Greta, uh, who I guess they'd been talking about them for some reason, and asks her to look after them for a moment. Isabel asks if she can fetch them something, perhaps a biscuit for Greta, and Mrs. Pegg says that Isabel is very considerate, and that is the scene. That's it. That's the whole thing. Greta gets a biscuit. <laughs> a lifetime original movie. I mean, Mrs. Pegg and Greta looked really upset. They did. I was no, like, it, what's going on with y'all? It really felt like there was a story there. Yeah. 
like did they cut every all the rest of that you know mini storyline except that scene presumably they just wanted to show isabel organizing things yeah uh, anyway it was weird downstairs at downton jimmy kent is pulling ivy off somewhere for five minutes uh it's never just five minutes <laughs> daisy notices <laughs> jimmy kent's like believe me with me you're lucky if it's five minutes <laughs> Jimmy Kent obligingly looks guiltily both ways before closing the door of the room they've gone in. Daisy then goes in the kitchen where Mrs. Patmore is telling a mystery maid that Ivy can make the savory tonight because there's only three of them dining. And Daisy asks, what about Daisy? And Patmore (laughs) tells her to collect the trays for the nursery and make the pancakes for the pudding and put them in the steam warmer, which sounds less glamorous than the savory. It does. Also, you know, those trays always come back untouched. Alfred blunders in with a newspaper and apparently uh, they are setting up a training school at the Ritz in London in honor of Monsieur Escoffier, who uh, we will talk about in just a second. Mm -hmm. But just for a few candidates and Daisy asks what it will cost. Alfred says that it doesn't cost anything. Anyone who passes the test gets free training with a basic wage and chance of a job because that's how things should be. Well, yeah. Mrs. Patmore says Daisy could do that. And Daisy asks if Mrs. Patmore is trying to get rid of her. Yeah, which, go, Daisy, go, be free. There's nothing for you here. (laughs) Yeah. Alfred thinks that Ivy should see this for some reason, and uh, Mrs. Patmore says she's around somewhere. Daisy then hesitantly tells Alfred that she's in the boot room. Right. The boot room. There's no more romantic room than the boot room. Am I right, servants? apart from Das Boot Room. (laughs) (laughs) If you're into German submarine role play. Which isn't everyone. I think so. Yeah. As he uh, heads over to the boot room, Daisy runs after him and opens the door to see Jimmy Kent and Ivy kissing. And as soon as they, like, open the door, Day- like Ivy just drops her head. Like, she's bizarrely inert for a person. Right. And also, this kissing that they were apparently doing involves, like, standing three feet apart and leaning all the way towards each other. Yeah, it is not hot at all. Yeah, like, I've seen sexier kissing in a Catholic high school marching band bus. Which, shudder. (laughs) Yeah. So, Alfred just storms off. He, uh, he's, he pulls a real Alfred here. (laughs) He does. (laughs) Which brings us to our recurring segment, in which the mother sauce of this podcast, Kelly Anakin, tells us something fashion backwards all right so uh we are going to talk a little bit about auguste escoffier who is uh the french chef restaurateur and culinary writer who popularized and updated traditional french cooking methods he was in a lot of ways the julia child of late 19th century early 20th century europe okay i was just gonna um his techniques were based on the the existing techniques and thinking of uh marie antoine carême which i'm probably mispronouncing mm-hmm. uh but he really popularized the idea of hot cuisine mm-hmm. so you know if you kind of think of it as you know uh carême sort of in- introduced hot cuisine escoffier kind of codified it and then julia child uh broke it down even further <laughs> yeah um but he and made spread it, just, it to the masses yeah he made it a little bit easier uh, he simplified a lot of things because Karam was very elaborate in his style. Mm. In particular, as you may have hinted, he made uh, the recipes for the five mother sauces set in stone. Right. And in case you don't know, those sauces are sauce bechamel, sauce espagnol, 
uh, sauce velouté, sauce hollandaise, and sauce tomate. And this is actually different from the mother sauces that Karem had set up. Those were Espanol, uh, velouté, allemande, and bechamel. Mm. And uh, Escoffier's thinking was that uh, Alamond was too close to Volute, so he kind of lumped that in there and then added uh, Hollandaise and uh, Tomate. Okay. You know, I, I'm sure as sort of, you know, rail travel was increasing and just there was a oh, lot more yeah. cross pollination in Europe right. in terms of different cuisines. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure he had spent some time with those dirty Italians. <laughs> because life is a beautiful. All partying at breakfast all the time. <laughs> uh, Check out this frittata. <laughs> so he published a book called Le Guide Culinaire, uh, which is still used as a major work hmm. of reference for chefs who are training. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, sort of, I, I think the, uh, the ideas about kitchen management are probably similar to what you saw in like Ratatouille, like, you know, uh, okay. delegating the tasks to certain tiers of chefs and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was born in 1846, but came to prominence uh, after the Franco-Prussian War. Early on, he showed promise as a painter, actually. Oh. Uh, but then he started an apprenticeship at his uncle's restaurant in Nice. And uh, then he moved to Paris in 1865 to work at the Le Petit Moulin Rouge restaurant. Oh. And then he became an army chef, actually, during the Franco-Prussian War. And he then got really into the technique of canning food. Hmm. Again, I'm basically reading this verbatim off of Wikipedia. Well, I understand. In case anybody was wor- wondering. It makes sense, but- too, because, like, you know, I assume being an army chef, you have to deal with a lot of, like, terrible food. Exactly. So, I mean, I'm sure, you know, he had quite the time. Yeah. And this is, you know, in 1870. So right. even the technology that they had for feeding a massive army in, you know, the 19-teens, mm-hmm. they did not have. Yeah, I mean, point. I know it was, I know that logistics in the American Civil War uh-huh. were just a disaster for the whole war. Yeah. Um, I don't know if maybe they were a bit more advanced, you know. I would guess they were probably about on par. You would think. I mean, Warcraft is something that tends to travel quickly. True, true. When there are advances made. Uh, so the thing that was really interesting to me, he was the sort of business partner of Cesar Ritz, founder of the Ritz-Carlton chain of hotels. Yeah, yeah. In 1890, they uh, transferred from uh, the French Riviera, where they were working at the Hotel National, mm-hmm. to the Savoy Hotel in London. And they brought their own maitre d', and they just kind of introduced what they'd been doing in France to uh, England. Right, so right. So that's sort of when you know things really got heavily into the French culinary world. Uh-huh. And, you know, one would imagine that Mrs. Patmore was, you know, training in that time. Right, right. I mean, and obviously, Escoffier's technique had been around for a while, so mm-hmm. it's likely, you know, I would think Mrs. Patmore would have trained in France I, at some point. I have no it's idea. It's hard to say. Yeah. Or trained with someone French. Right. So the Savoy was a huge success. Uh, the Prince of Wales was a huge fan of what they were doing. And this is actually when uh, aristocratic women were now able to start dining in public because ah, the Savoy yes. was such a hit. So that is when, you know, when Edith makes that comment right, about right. they were staying in hotel, <laughs> uh, they were allowed to eat. And mm-hmm. that's most likely because, you know, 
that would have been right around the time that uh, Edith and her sisters would have been young girls. Yeah, yeah. So McGee would have been, you know, front and center for the luncheons. <laughs> Escoffier also created uh, several dishes named after Dame Nellie Melba. Oh. He invented peach Melba in her honor, as well as Melba toast, which he created for her because she was ill and she couldn't mm. eat very much. So he created Melba toast for her to eat. Oh, okay. Well, that's nice. Because I was about to say, that's kind of a backhanded compliment. But the other thing, though, too, is it wasn't just that, it, you know, what we think of as Melba toast right. being the, the twice toasted bread. Uh, when he made it, it, there would be like cheese and some other topping on mm. it frequently. Okay. He also made uh, uh, fraises a la Sarah Bernhardt, which was strawberries with pineapple and Caracao sorbet. Most of his like famous dishes were desserts for some reason, except for the Supremas de Wallace Jeanette jellied chicken breasts with foie gras, which sounds disgusting. Yeah, good lord. Um, I don't know why anybody thinks anything should be jellied. I don't either, <laughs> except for jelly. Right. And Beyonce's butt. <laughs> In 1898, uh, Ritz and Escoffier both left the Savoy, and uh, apparently they were implicated in the disappearance of about 3,400 pounds worth of wine and spirits, but nobody ever proved this oh. against them. Um, but by this time, oh, they, they just had one big goodbye party. Uh, wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, because I think they probably did it because their plan was actually to go into business for themselves mm. as the Ritz Hotel Development Company. Uh, so they they started in Paris with the Paris Ritz, and then they set up the Carlton Hotel in London. And I, I'm not entirely sure where the name Carlton came from in this mm, yeah. situation. Yeah, they basically swiped all of the Savoy's clientele yeah. uh, with the Carlton in London. And then uh, tea at the Ritz also became very popular, although Escoffier hated it because oh, yeah. he's quoted as saying, how can one eat jam, cakes, and pastries and enjoy a dinner, the king of meals, an hour or two later? How can one appreciate the food, the cooking, or the wines? Which I kind of agree with. It makes sense. Uh, and uh, in 1913, Escoffier actually met Kaiser Wilhelm II uh, on board the SS Imperator. He was, you know, the Ritz-Carlton group was overseeing the entire culinary experience mm. and the Kaiser loved the food so much that he told Escoffier, I am the emperor of Germany, but you are the emperor of chefs. Ooh. And so that was quoted frequently in the press. However, I'm like, like up until 1916, <laughs> right. like when did, when did that stop being cool? Look, it never or it was like, you know, we may hate that goddamn dirty Kaiser Wilhelm, but he knows his food. <laughs> Look, once somebody calls you the Emperor of Chefs, like it doesn't matter. You're gonna that's on your bio forever. Yeah. Uh so Escoffier took over as sort of the figurehead of the Carlton until he retired in nineteen twenty when Ritz left in nineteen oh six. And then he ran the kitchens through World War One. Uh unfortunately his younger son was killed in active service, which might make again that Kaiser Wilhelm compliment not quite as fun. No. Uh, and then he died in 1935 at the age of 88, a few days after the death of his wife. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, he had this whole life, which yeah. I found very interesting. I mean, I think that's a very basic overview. Yeah. And I think there are a couple of biographies that I am frankly interested in checking out. See, you know what, Jimmy Kent? He traveled the world, danced with women, drank champagne mm -hmm. because he had a skill. Look. Anyway. We can all agree that Jimmy Kent is the goddamn worst. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank so you. So that's been Fashion Backwards. Yes. I enjoyed it. Word to your mother sauce. <laughs> uh, we see the exterior of London Street and are informed by the subtitles that men and women are laughing. Oh, so, Well, it must be London then. <laughs> right. 
Uh, Mary is shown into Rosamond's drawing room or whatever, and she's apologizing for being a bit late, uh, but is brought up short by the presence of one aristocratic pirate named Gilly. <laughs> Thank you, Rod Serling. <laughs> yes. He hopes that he is a surprise and not a shock, and Mary says, well, he's certainly unexpected. Rosamond uh, explains that she thought she'd get up an informal party and points out Bullock as if that makes things better. <laughs> Uh, and Mary's like, yeah, they were just staying with like, us. Like, it was yesterday. Right. <laughs> like, it was literally yesterday. Yeah. But Rosamond says that Cora had said the party was a success, so that was why she thought this would be a good idea. And Rose says that it was very clever of Bullock and Gilly to be free at such short notice. Like, And I know clever means something different in Britain than it does here, but right. I'm like, that's a weird thing to say. It is. Bullock says that he had just been planning an evening of cards and whiskey, so this sounds much better. Uh, disagree. (laughs) Right. I'll go to your club. (laughs) You can't. (laughs) Mary purses her Perseus lips and raises her raisedest eyebrows, but uh, they are all... There's no stopping this party at this point. Uh, It's a veritable Miley Cyrus. (laughs) Right. Uh, she asks Gilly how he was free, and he says he canceled what he was supposed to be doing. And Mary says, I hope Miss Lane Fox didn't mind. Boom. <laughs> oh, I see you're stepping up your boom game. Well, I... Tom was uh, shamed on the Twitter <laughs> for having a weak boom in the last episode. And it was fair. Yeah. Um, Gilly asks not to be punished for wanting to see her again, which may- maybe you should be. Yeah. Uh, You're kind of a dick. I think he's the Molesley of this episode, frankly. Yeah, kind of is. Well, unless it's Bullock, who Rose says has had a marvelous idea. (laughs) I doubt it. He would like to take them all to hear the new band at the Lotus Club. And Rose says that since Rosamond and Mary will be her her chaperones, what could be more proper? Bullock says that it's not too jazzy, this club. And Gilly says that they will keep the young in order, Mary and him. Uh, if Mary approves, Rose begs Mary to say yes, because, you know, Rose has not been able to go to a fun party for fucking ever. Yeah. Uh, and Mary asks Branson if he's in, and he says he was going to stay with Lady Rosamond, but Lady Rosamond wants to party. She's in the mood for jazz. <laughs> I mean, she is a middle-aged woman. That, that's, that's true. I mean, granted, I guess it meant something different back then. <laughs> right. This isn't the Nora Jones she's imagining. <laughs> uh so rose says that settles it tom will be rosamond's partner which is an amusing concept and so tom and mary give in back at the meddling clinic (laughs) isabel says she's gotten things in order in the supply closet so it will be easier next time and clarkson is glad to hear that there will be a next time and asks how she got on with mrs peg isabel says that she wanted to talk and she's lonely uh meaning mrs peg and Clarkson says, yes, she would be. Again. Where is, there... where is this story? Yeah. Anyway, Isabel says she might look in on Saturday or Sunday. And Dr. Clarkson says it's kind of her to bother. Is uh, Look, okay, whatever. We're yeah. not going to even go. Are they getting together again? Which is right. fine. We were, yeah, we're, okay we were with this at least one. nominally supportive of these two dating at some point. Yeah. You know, because God knows they're pointless without something to do. Yeah. You know. The outpatient clinic is going to work for, like, two episodes of diversion, <laughs> but then you're going to be back in the same problem, which is like, ooh, these two. Yeah. Like, still? Is a Blarkson. 
Clark Sabell. <laughs> Down in the servants' dining hall, Daisy brings in a tray and sees Alfred with a whole bunch of books he's studying out for this MacGuffin exam. <laughs> um, he says he's definitely going to apply now because it's the only way for him to get over Ivy. Alfred is making me so embarrassed for myself in the past because like, I've definitely said things. He's like, I'll never get over this. And I'm like, do you know how much pussy there is in London? So much pussy. And not like Ivy pussy where it's going to take you forever to get it. Like gin swilling, jazz age floozies just wanting to, On you know, every corner. Yeah. They'll be like, oh, Alfred. I knew an Alfred once. Let's go. <laughs> Uh, so Daisy, you know, stomps out of the room only to run into Thomas, who asks her, you know, what's up and why she's upset. She says that she's been stupid and everything's ruined, which is so not the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, Patmore comes in and tells Daisy to get a wiggle on, which... Please don't. Yeah, don't do that. Um, and tells Mr. Barrow to stop teasing her. Uh, which he wasn't. Yeah, and he says it to her. He's like, no, I was, I was gearing up. Right. But I got I was shot laying the down. groundwork for possible future teasing. No, I really enjoy Thomas in this episode. He's just I like, la da 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 Well, he's like, like, everybody else has, you know, got crises going on. He reminds me of that meme of Leonardo DiCaprio where he's like, oh, got his yeah. head at that jaunty angle and it's like, you know, no fucks were given that day. Right, That's right. what Thomas is like in this episode. Yeah. So you're welcome for me describing a meme to you. <laughs> we hear a band playing jazzy dance music on the subtitles. Must be the Lotus Club. Woo. Crawleys and co. head up the staircase to the main room and take a table. Bullock offers everyone champagne, but Mary declines to Bullock's bafflement. He's like, what do you mean no champagne? I mean, to be fair, that is probably the reaction that I would have as well. <laughs> well, that's true. Gilly is sucking up to Mary and they start dancing. Gilly says also that Bullock got a head start on the whiskey before receiving the invitation. Yeah. So, wah, 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 <laughs> Oh, my God. Black guy. Whoa. Finally. It's happened. He's here. Uh, unfortunately, he has a shockingly unappealing singing voice yeah. for a person who was specifically cast to play a singer. A professional singer. A professional singer. Not just like a lunatic on the street. Exactly. Like, <laughs> this is supposed to be how he's earning his living. And it's... Awful. It's awful, and it's not helped by his very tin-eared American accent. Yeah, that's certainly not. And it's it's not very, like, like, I've got my American accent to keep me warm, mother. Right, and like he's on pitch, like it's not that, it's just like thin. It's just, yeah, it's awful. Yeah. Like, I, you know, we're just going to pretend that it's historically accurate, <laughs> like an original pronunciation Shakespeare production. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, where things rhyme that don't rhyme. <laughs> right. But uh, in yeah, a stack- they loved They loved that singing back then. Ugh. Yeah. Anyway. He's very cute, though. That's very true. attractive no, he young is, man. He seems perfectly charismatic and all that. In a staggering coincidence, he's singing April Showers, the <laughs> very song that Rose hipster shamed uh, <laughs> Bullock. Bullock about in the previous episode. Yeah. Gilly apologizes for ambushing Mary. She correctly observes that the ambush was laid by Mama and <laughs> Aunt Rosamond, and she's glad that he came. She says when he's when she's at Downton, she feels as if she were stuck at school for the rest of her life. But tonight she's playing truant and she likes it. Yeah, it would suck to live in the same house your entire life. It would. Even yeah. if it was that house. Yeah. And like with your whole family there all the time. Yeah. Like, burf. Never moving out of your parents' house. Not fun. Yeah. Uh, 
Gilly asks if he can see her again, and Mary says they're going straight to the station after their meeting, and anyway, he's engaged. Almost engaged, says Gilly, with Molesley-like self-awareness. <laughs> Mary says that's good enough for her, and anyway, she's not ready to embark on any sort of relationship and won't be for some years. Mm-hmm. Gilly doesn't believe her. Uh, Mary says that it's been lovely, but now it's time for real life. And Gilly asks if real life includes him. Mary says, how could it? April showers ends. There's applause. Also, Gilly... Slow your roll. Yeah. Like, this is He's, not... Again, it's been six months and now two days. Right. And and you have known her for two days. Yeah. Come so on. So you need... Look. Uh, she's very attractive. Once again... You don't have to tell me. Baron but... Fellows, uh, God is beating his head against a wall right now. <laughs> Lucifer! <laughs> Got me cheese. <laughs> Well, because now it's like God is Carl Winslow oh, right. and Satan is Steve Urkel. And I love this. No, I love it too. Eddie is Jesus. <laughs> that, see, and the thing is, that's actually Satan's voice. That's why he's such a bad mood for all eternity. That's a good point. Because it sounds so dumb. Ooh, and also Judy, the sister that disappeared, <laughs> she's like how in the Bible they're like, Jesus had brothers. <laughs> right. People are like, no, he didn't. People are like, I swear. She was in the credits in the first season. <laughs> <laughs> in McGee's room, McGee tells Lord Grantham and her witch maid that she rang for Mary, but apparently they'd all gone out to a nightclub. Uh, Lord Grantham says that doesn't sound very Rosamond. What does sound very Rosamond? Taking all of your food and then bitching about it later? Uh, disapproval. Good point. Yeah. McGee says it also doesn't sound very Mary, so it's rather encouraging. Uh, I think they, they've both clearly underestimated Rose. Like, they were going to a nightclub. Oh, Rose is a force of nature. Yeah. She did not live through the war in the same way that y'all lived through the war. Like, <laughs> right. she is like, let's do this. Yeah. Grantham says that McGee can't make Mary like Gilly, and McGee says it's not the point. She just wants Mary to start to live again. Also, McGee is wearing a lovely nightgown that is frankly superior to many of her actual daytime clothes yeah. as a dress. Well, I wonder if it's because it looks more Victorian and that's still kind of her thing. Maybe. I don't it's possible. Anyway, Lord Grantham says perhaps she's right. And she says, of course I'm right. There's no perhaps about it. Which in any other storyline. It's true. Uh, yeah, it's like opposite day at Downton Abbey. It really is. Downstairs, Alfred is telling Patmore that he's got some big gaps cooking-wise and in his brain. <laughs> Patmore tells him to make a list of things that he needs to learn and that Daisy will help, won't you? Daisy says, of course, but it's a shame if Alfred has to go. Wrong. But Alfred doesn't even know if he'll get a test letter and an offer. Ivy says she couldn't go to London, but Patmore says she could if it was the next step in her journey. Which again... Why is no one encouraging Daisy to do this test? Well, first of all, again, turns out Daisy's been dead the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> but second of all, this is... I, And I've been more so this season, but I've, I've loved Patmore's advice for everyone. Yeah, like the where whole, are you in my... I want her to be my mentor. Yeah, for real. Ivy asks Alfred if he's sure he wants to be a chef, but Jimmy Kent just rolls in and scoffs at this chef business. And uh, Pat Moore says he's just being sour because he has no dreams, which, boom. Yeah. But Jimmy Kent insists that he does have dreams, but they don't involve feeling p- peeling potatoes. I'm like, well, you're going to be a footman for the rest of your life? Right. That's like, the only skill you have. Like, I do have dreams. They're just impractical and never going to happen. Boom. 
Ivy laughs that Alfred leaves and so does Ivy. And then Patmore tells Daisy to help Alfred out with this test because it'll be better if they part friends. And then Daisy says, one moment of nastiness and I'll be paying for the rest of my days. I don't even know what that refers to. That she, she like told Alfred to go to that boot room oh. so that he would see them. Okay. That's, yeah. Well, whatever. Yeah. Also, oh my God, you own a farm. Right? Why are you still here? What happened to that farm? What happened to Mr. Mason? Is he all right? I don't know. She <laughs> should go check on him. <laughs> yeah. He loves her. Like the farm is just slowly decaying. Mm. You know, pigs running all over the place. <laughs> it's animal farm now. <laughs> Anyway, Patmore correctly points out that Daisy's probably better off if Alfred goes because this one-sided thing is just not going to do her any good. Yeah. Back at the Lotus Club, Jack Ross is singing a song. Oh, I guess we don't know his name, right? It's Jack Ross. Yeah, it's Jack Ross. Uh, about how- I like, it makes him sound like a, like a, like a secret agent. Jack Ross! <laughs> yeah. Uh, I see a light in your eyes. I tried to figure out both of the other two songs he sings in this scene, but I couldn't find them on mm-hmm. Google. So again, if anybody knows. Uh, Rosamond dances with Tom and asks how he's enjoying it. It meaning being a crawly. Burf. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Tom says that they've been kinder to him than he deserves. Rosamond says she's sure that's not true, but she secretly believes it. Yeah, totally. At this point, they're interrupted because they hear Bullock, who is busy making a Bullock of himself. Mm-hmm. Pulling <laughs> a real Bullock out there on the dance floor. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, reeling around and like doing all these dips that are not called for by the music and that sort of thing. Rosamond hastily suggests that perhaps they should all sit down and Rose tries to get Bullock to agree, but that guy is wasted. Oh yeah. Yeah. This is like freshman year frat party wasted. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And uh, she says they're making a show of themselves. And Bullock is like, great. Everybody should look at me. Uh, but then he runs off because he has to go vomit on a servant. <laughs> so Rose is left stranded in the middle of the dance floor in embarrassment. Can she not just walk to the table? That is... Uh, this scene posits no. Okay. It appears great. to be the case. And, you know, I don't know. I can sort of imagine him being some sort of etiquette sure thing uh so the singer sees her and uh comes down off the stage and starts dancing with her which i guess that's fine well like, at least he's sparing the crowd from his horrible singing <laughs> that's true like they all start applauding <laughs> uh he asked her if she's all right uh rose says that bullock isn't normally like that although she doesn't know him well so she has no idea what he's normally like Rosamond sees this happen and about passes out. Mm-hmm. Like, she is horrified. Uh, Rose thanks uh, Jack for saving her face. And meanwhile, Tom has been silently dispatched by everybody at the table to go rest Rose from his clutches. He introduces himself at this point as Jack Ross, and Rose introduces herself as Rose McClare, mm-hmm. as opposed to Rose Smith. Well, she's in a more appropriate setting, and her whole family is there. <laughs> right, that's true. Uh, Tom comes up and says that he's been sent to fetch Rose, uh, and there's a shot at the table, and, and wrote Mary, Gilly, and Rosamond are all, like, glaring at them. I'm sure that, uh, Bullock is also, like, he's felt a disturbance in the force, <laughs> and he's vomiting and glaring in that direction now. I'm vomiting in disgust, not drunkenness. <laughs> also drunkenness. <laughs> um... 
And so Jack says, hey, if your friends are waiting, and Rose introduces Tom to Mr. Ross and says that he rescued her from deep humiliation, and Tom's like, yeah, we should be going. Uh, Rose says that he was rude, and then they walk off. Rose says that he was rude. Uh, Tom doesn't think he was. Rose asks if anybody knows what happened to John, and Gilly says he assumes that he's gone home. It's been like five minutes. Yeah, I doubt like, he's made it home. Yeah. Also, you're not being a very good like party buddy. Like, you don't just assume that he's gone home. No, no, no. It's fine. He pinned uh, the address of his club on the uh, <laughs> on his mittens before. <laughs> Can you help me out? I'm quite rich. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where anything is. <laughs> Um, well, take me to Buckingham Palace. <laughs> How often do you think drunk people in England say things like that? <laughs> I don't know. Cousins. Are you, are, you, in- <laughs> are you British? Are you frequently drunk? <laughs> if so, we want to hear your story. Yeah. Uh, Rose hopes that Bullock paid the bill before he left and says that it hadn't been for Mr. Ross. And Rosamond interrupts her and says that... You looked as if you were having quite an adventure with your gallant band leader. Which is clearly code for the N-word. Right. And also, that wasn't much of an adventure. No, that was really boring. That was 15 seconds of, you know, moderate dancing. Yeah. Yeah. In any case, Rose, uh, you know, again tries to defend him as he starts singing again. He starts singing A Rose by Any Other Name. Ooh la la. Yeah. There's Mm -hmm. a meaning in that. That (laughs) There is. Uh, but anyway, everybody's like, yeah, party over. We're all heading out. Uh, Tom seems to be like at least a little sympathetic towards her. Uh, but that's it. Uh, but as she leaves, she makes eye contact with Jack Ross and he waves goodbye. And he does not seem deterred. No, he doesn't. And I will, you know, take a moment to talk about this. I appreciate how racist. Oh, yeah. All of them were. They were so racist. Yeah. And it's just. They were as racist as my extended family. <laughs> right. And it was just, you know, because these are sympathetic characters. Mm-hmm. You know, this is Mary we're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, the protagonists of this show. And there's been issues with how anachronistically progressive they are at times. Mm-hmm. But in this case, they were clear. Like, like you know, like, not in this scene, but in the next one, Rosamond, like, says a black band leader. Yeah, like, and just spits it out. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, she's the most vocal about it. But, I mean, the disapproval of everyone, including our favorite ex-Irish revolutionary yes, Tom. indeed. Like, well, Tom, I mean, you know, which Tom is not... seems slightly sympathetic, but only in the sense that he doesn't... He isn't angry with Rose. Yeah. But he still did not seem to... No. He was not on board. I mean, despite the fact that they clearly dispatched the lowest-ranking member of their party to go deal with this person. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Intersectionality, people. Yeah. Let's fix the world. Hooray. Um... Yeah, so speaking of that next scene, oh, right. we're back yeah. at Rosamond's, and Rosamond is uh, going up uh, to to bed, as is Rose, who is whacked. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I don't think you know what that means. <laughs> Rosamond assumes that Bullock has blotted his copybook, as far as Rose is concerned. And Rose says that she's not sure she thinks everyone deserves a second chance, but Rosamond says not everyone does. Which I agree with, uh, but then I immediately disagree with her when she says things have come to a pretty pass when you have to be rescued by a black band leader. Yeah. Uh, you also could have rescued her. Like, either you or Tom or Mary or right. Gilly or anybody yeah. could have tried to help her out of this situation, yeah. and none of you did anything. You were all watching. You yeah. all saw the whole thing, and you didn't go and tell, you know, 
she was miscegenating or whatever. Yeah. Like, ugh. Anyway, Rose is gl- and Rose points out saying she's glad anybody wanted to rescue her and thinks Rosamond would have felt the same. So they go, but that's the last that we hear about this issue. But we're looking forward to future episodes yes. and seeing how this plays out. Indeed. And praying that it involves very little of Jack Ross actually singing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as everyone's going up, Mary asks Tom uh, what the matter is. He's been in a glump all day. Tom says she would despise him if he told her. And Mary says that he might be surprised, but she said that to someone once. And she did confess in the end, and it helped. Tom says he still can't say it to her, and Mary says to find someone he can tell because it will help. And on that modest note, good night. Yes. And I, I like... I've said it before, but I like the relationship between them and and the whole younger generation. Mm -hmm. And I was realizing that kind of what it is is that all of them, and really a lot of people, uh, aren't, none of them are like seeking out drama anymore. No, they're all just trying to live their lives. And that's dramatic enough with the way that things are progressing. Right. Like Julian Fellows will handle the drama. Yeah. Yeah. Downstairs, Edna is polishing some shoes and humming to herself. Thomas comes in and says that he's surprised she's so cheerful since she was very down in the mouth when she was talking with Mr. Branson. Uh, Edna asks if he thinks he can read her like a book, and Thomas says, I pride myself on keeping my eyes open in his Thomas way. Uh, and Edna says that he'll need to because he'll he'll be glad he stayed on her good side someday. So I'm so done with this. Yeah. Also, on. I do, I, as much as I'm enjoying this, I'm like, when has Thomas ever cared about anybody else at Downton Abbey? <laughs> Out front, a car pulls up with the returning Crawleys. Mary tells Rose that Anna needs her curling irons, and Rose says that she will tell the elusive Madge. Yes. Uh, downstairs, Anna has come in, and Bates is very glad she's back and asks how it was. And Anna explains that Lady Mary seemed pleased. Bates asks her to kiss him or tell him what's the matter and why she's being so standoffish. Mm-hmm. And Anna tells him not to bully her. Bates says he knows that she's unhappy, but not why. And he hopes that it's not him, but he needs to know the reason. So he won't press her right now, but he will find out. Carson comes by and Bates walks away. And Carson asks Anna to tell Mary that Gilly is there. Uh, Anna is horrified yeah. and again not doing a good job of of concealing her horror. Right. And when I'm saying well, that, like I'm not trying to say that she should or should. Right. It's just that, that that's what she wants to be doing. Right. But she just can't. Yeah. Well, I mean, this in particular. Like, oh yeah. And so uh, she says that they just saw him in London and wants to know if his valet is with him. She means is he staying because Lady Mary will want to know. Right. And then Carson says that he doesn't seem to be, and then sends her off to find Lady Mary. Yeah. In Hughes's parlor, we see the end of a conversation in which Branson has uh, confessed everything to Hughes about the witch situation. Uh, the witchuation. <laughs> the witchuation. Uh, Hughes says it's a sorry tale, and he agrees. And he says that it's all his fault. Hughes says no, although it is partly his fault, mm-hmm. and uh, asks if he expects her to help him. And he says he couldn't think of anyone else to turn to. Not the most flattering invitation I've ever heard. Uh, she asks what's to be done, and Brands is like, I don't know, should I go back to her again and just like beg or whatever? And Hughes says they haven't come to that yet. I'm so curious though, like, how drunk was he? Right. You know? I am also, like, yeah. This is, this is troubling in, not, you know, it would be troubling regardless yeah, of yeah, the yeah. other rape plot line, but it's like, you know, maybe he shouldn't have talked to her, but that still doesn't justify her sneaking into his room. Right. And, yeah, it's... And it's like, you know, however drunk you were, 
like either you were too drunk to tell her to leave or you wanted to. Right. But he hasn't expressed that. It's very yeah. murky and I don't like it. Yeah. Agreed. I'm against it. <laughs> so we see uh, Mary walk across the main hall and enter the library and she comes in and sees Gilly and says, I'm so sorry. I was just dressing for a community theater production of Camelot I'm in <laughs> because she's wearing the ugliest fucking thing. God, it's either this or the dress that Edith is wearing I was later. Say. Ugh, so freaking ugly. Yeah. So she tells uh, Gilly that she thought it must be a mistake when she heard he was there. He says that he took the same train as Mary, but in third class because he didn't want to speak to her on the train with everyone there. Yeah. Which creepy. Yeah, very creepy. Gilly goes from like annoying to like insane right. in the space of about sixty seconds yeah. here. Yeah. Mary offers him some tea, so uh, he accepts and she rings the bell and then asks for an explanation. And he just straight up asks her to marry him. Yeah. Like, no yeah. fanfare, no lead up, just straight up asks her because mm-hmm. he is a man and thinks that he right. can do this. Uh, Mary just takes a minute and he says, Tony, you don't know me. And we're like, no, he doesn't. <laughs> Punch him. <laughs> he says that they've known each other since they were children. And Mary points out that there was a very long gap and that they only met properly a few days ago. And then he says he wants to spend the rest of his life with her and that he loves her and that there must be a way to convince her. So then Jimmy Kent comes in and Mary asks him to bring them some tea. Gilly says that he's never met Matthew, but I'm sure he's a splendid chap. Mary says that he was. Gilly then tactfully points out that Matthew is dead and he is alive. Right. And like pro tip, if you're trying to woo a very recent, again, six weeks, three days at this point. Right. I'm sorry, six months, three days. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, maybe don't so baldly state the fact that the person is dead. Like, yeah. that's really your like, primary obstacle. Yeah, and also, I mean, you can pretty much take it as given that she knows the difference between somebody who's alive and is dead. That's why she's talking to you right now. <laughs> right. If Matthew was still alive, Gilly would be off, you know, not letting Sailing his... the seven seas in search of plunder. <laughs> well, that and not letting his valet rape people willy-nilly. Yeah. Uh... Anyway, he says that he and Mary could be happy together if she lets them. Mary once again asks about Miss Lane Fox, and then Gilly says that he likes her and could even imagine growing to love her, but he doesn't. Not like he loves Mary. She fills his brain. He can't stop thinking about her, etc. I'm like, don't you mean a tumor? That's a tumor you're describing. (laughs) Right. So Mary says that he's very persuasive, and I say, no, he is not. (laughs) Right. Uh, She only wishes she could be persuaded. Gilly says she can take as long as she needs, years if necessary, just as long as he knows she'll marry him in the end, which sounds like you want an answer right now. Right. You want her to say something now. Yeah. Lord Grantham then blunders in and asks Gilly why he's there, and Gilly says he had some business nearby. Liar. <laughs> so he thought he'd look in. Lord Grantham asks if he's staying, and he says he brought a bag on the off chance, but left Green behind so as not to make a fuss over a one-night stay or to create a two-night rape. Uh, in Hughes's parlor, Branson is sitting anxiously, and Hughes comes in. Uh, Branson says he can't wait much longer because Nanny's bringing down Sibby in a moment, which I don't believe for a second. I don't believe that either. <laughs> and also, like, uh, shouldn't you have scheduled this meeting at a time that wasn't his designated, like, half hour of seeing his child time? <laughs> right. But Hughes says that she's coming now, and Edna comes in and sees Tom and figures out what's going on and and she says i see smugly uh because she thinks that they're going to try and pay her off uh and hughes asks why would they do that 
Uh, she says if she's pregnant, she won't, she wants the baby to have a father. She won't change her mind for any money. But you're gonna have him be a father with money though, right? That was your plan? Yes. Uh, and Hughes says that she wasn't planning to make an offer because there is no child. Branson's like taken aback and Edna says that Hughes can't know that. Hughes says that actually she does. She's got x-ray vision. <laughs> um, I love this scene. Yeah. I wish Mrs. Hughes was playing Sherlock and that Branson was her uh, Dr. Watson. I uh, would watch the shit out of that show. I, I, this is so much more compelling to me than the entire first series of Sherlock. I, and yes, cousins, I will fight you. <laughs> yeah, I would love that. And I mean, yeah, because Branson is such a Watson in this scene. Yeah, because like, he's just like, <laughs> I say. And he's the only one having sex. <laughs> right, that's true. Uh, yes, because what Hughes d- deduced is that Edna would not have let herself get pregnant until she was sure she had Branson locked up, and she knew how to prevent getting pregnant because she had among her things a book, Married Love by <gasps> Maurice Dopes. A favorite of our friend Wanup. That's right. We were, we were we, so look, excited. We get really excited when these things crop up, yeah. so... Uh, that's... This is this is what Julian Fellow has like. probably watched Parades End. Well, that's probably and was true. like, by golly, <laughs> I'll put that in there. <laughs> I and wonder then, if Mary could marry Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid I'm rather engaged at the moment. <laughs> uh, Married Love by Marie Stopes, or Unmarried Love in your case. Says Ooh, you. sweet burn. <laughs> Uh, Branson asks, but then what if he had agreed to marry her and that there was no baby? Hughes says that there would have been, and she's sure that Edna had a candidate in mind for the father. Whoa. Which I wonder, she's Because she said, like, things she said earlier about how he would be glad to be on her good side, and maybe she doesn't know he's gay. I don't remember whether she Oh, I don't know. I just assumed she meant, like, that she would be planning to get knocked up by somebody right. or other. Well, Hugh says that she had a specific candidate, and oh. I'm wondering if she did and if it was Thomas. But it doesn't really matter. Good luck with that. Yeah. Um, anyway, Edna says that they don't have any proof, and Hugh says that they don't, but she will summon the doctor if necessary. Uh, Edna says that they can't force her, but Hughes disagrees and says that she will lock her in her parlor, tear the clothes from her body, and hold her down if that's what it takes. Which sounds an awful lot like rape. Yeah. That like, was... let's not let the punishment fit the crime that much. Right. I mean, you know, I understand that there will be a doctor present and everything, but... Gee. Yeah. Uh, Edna says that Branson's, it's still the case that Branson seduced her. Hughes says that she got him drunk and climbed in his bed, and that doesn't sound like seduction to her, which is a fair point. Uh, and Edna finally says that they can't stop her from speaking to her ladyship. And Hughes says, no, they can't, but if she wants a reference or another job in her natural life, she'll hold her tongue. Uh, she gives her the book back, and Edna retreats in defeat. Branson asks Hughes how she knew Edna wasn't pregnant. Again, Watson. Uh, and Hughes says that she didn't know, and a doctor couldn't have told yet either, but they know now. Which, I mean, they're being a bit definitive. She could have gotten pregnant. It's unlikely. Right. If she was following the advice of Marie Stopes, which now I want this book. <laughs> yeah. I really want a copy of this book. I mean, it's, you know, presumably out yeah. there somewhere. Anyway, but regardless, they have at least exposed the motivation behind this whole thing, which again, 
I'm not advocating that anybody should do this, but like, you know, Edna, yeah. there's a really easy way to just like trick someone to fall in love with you and get you pregnant and marry you. Like people do it all the time. Right. Well, she's got her sights set on somebody who wears fancy clothes. Yeah. And, and why? Yeah. I don't. Downton Abbey is so boring to live in. Yeah. Like I mean, when Turks aren't dying left and right. <laughs> but anyway, that plot has been foiled. Thank God. <laughs> Edna is running up the back stairs and uh, encounters Thomas, who asks, what's the matter? He thought they were all about to dance to her tune. Uh, Edna says that people dislike Thomas because he's sly and oily and smug, and she's pleased she got the chance to tell him. Yes. Thomas adopts his slyest, oilest, smuggest expression, as she says Which is that. lovely. Yeah. But then he shoots back with, well, if we're playing the truth game, then you're a manipulative little witch. Boom! Yeah. We called it! Mm-hmm. Uh, he is delighted if her schemes have failed, and then Thomas asks if she's leaving, but she won't give him the satisfaction of saying one way or the other. Yeah. But we do see her leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, Good riddance. Yeah. Never come back. Yeah. Seriously. Sadly, we don't see her, you know, being burned or something that would keep her out of us, but... <sighs> Presumably, this is the last Grace time. Grace Waite died on their way back to her home planet. Exactly. Um, and in McGee's room, McGee tells Lord Grantham the shocking development that Edna quit uh, as Anna is dressing McGee in Edna's absence. Uh, apparently, she gave her notice because of family troubles. A.K.A. family planning troubles. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Lord Grantham asks if they're cursed to lose their ladies' maids at regular intervals. Because after all, this is the second maid McGee has lost in only the last ten years. Maybe the reason that Lord Grantham can't remember anything is that he's like Dory in Finding Nemo, where he has really (laughs) bad short-term memory. (laughs) So he thinks he's only lost the money once. (laughs) And then he's learned his lesson. (laughs) Lord Grantham asks Anna if she knew about it, and she just shakes her head. Uh, Lord Grantham then asks her if anything is the matter, because she seems quiet lately. Uh, she says no. He says he hopes that Bates is behaving himself. And Anna says he is, and he never does anything else. Uh, and then she heads out. Lord Grantham asks McGee if she has heard that Gilly asked himself for the night. I like how they could, like, imagine that one of them wouldn't hear this for some reason. I'm like, don't you have spies all over this house? (laughs) Uh, In any case, she says that she's trying not to read too much into it, but does not appear to be succeeding. No. Uh, She asks, Lord Grantham asks if Isabel is still coming for dinner, and McGee says that, yes, she couldn't put her off. And Lord Grantham's like, of course you couldn't. And Isabel will have to get used to the idea that Mary will wake up at some stage. In the drawing room, the Dowager Countess asks Lord Grantham why he's in his rompers, <laughs> a.k.a. black tie. Yeah. But apparently Gilly only brought black tie because he foolishly didn't think that they would be changing. Right. Uh, and then the Dowager Countess says, so another brick is pulled from the wall. <laughs> uh, and I really want to hear the Dowager Countess say... How can you have your pudding if you don't eat your meat? (laughs) Because she don't need no education. That's true. She's part of the landed aristocracy. Yeah. She's part of the thought control. Mm Mm-hmm. The Dowager Countess asks why Gilly's back. Lord Grantham does not know, but he's glad that he is. Isabel comes over as the Dowager Countess says that not all of them are glad. And then Isabel asks if the Dowager Countess is ready to go because the car is ready and the Dowager Countess says that she is. 
Uh, so Lord Grantham goes over to Gillian Mary, uh, saying it's a pity that Edith wasn't there since he's leaving in the morning, so she missed her chance. And Lord Grantham wonders why Edith went to London, because when he asked her why, she assumed an air of mystery. And Mary responds, honestly, Papa, Edith's about as mysterious as a bucket. Which is true. Oh, I man. have really missed Mary slamming on Edith. Yeah. Like, let's have more of this, please. Agreed. Well, everyone really. She was slamming on Rosamond earlier. Mm-hmm, that's true. It's, it's pretty fun. Let's 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 get it back. That's right. And tells Lord Grantham that of course she's gone to see Gregson, uh, the Dowager Countess, who happens by at this moment says that that's the next thing they have to look forward to. <laughs> um, but Lord Grantham says he doesn't dislike Gregson, and the Dowager says, "What a recommendation." <laughs> And she says goodnight, as does Isabel, who shakes Gilly's hand and says she hopes they see him again. And Lord Grantham and Dowager Countess are super impressed by her basic politeness, mm-hmm. which I thought was a bit much. Like, yeah. you know, she's she's a classy enough lady. Like, anyway. She was a doctor's wife. She knows how to handle a difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Nighttime in London, Gregson uh, tells Edith that Monks left the coffee and left until the morning. Uh, he'll be washing his hands until 8 a.m. Uh, Edith hopes that Gregson won't have to wash up. Edith sounds genuinely horrified by the right. idea that <laughs> yeah. he might have to do something. Right. Uh, well, I mean, on the one hand, it occurs to me that if he has to do the washing up, that means after they get married, she'll have to do the yeah, washing up. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so he says, no, Monk will do it in the morning. And then Edith tells, says that that's quite a discipline. And I don't know why this reminds her of Lady Warwick. Well, she's saying the discipline is for, like, the 8 a.m. thing. I, you know, I, I actually That's what I'm saying, because I, I thought the point it, was, like, if your servants don't, like, live with you or something like that. I don't know. Right. Yeah, anyway. Apparently... Good old Lady Warwick used to have the stable bell at Easton run, rung at 6 a.m. So everyone had time to get back to the right beds before the servants came in, which I think <laughs> is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Gregson says he thought that was apocryphal, but apparently Lord Grantham and McGee stayed there once and confirmed it, though uh, they were already in the right bed. Yes. And then Edith gets a little embarrassed and says she doesn't know why she said that. And then Gregson says he hopes that he knows why she said that. And then she tells him not to be silly. <laughs> Gregson kisses her hand and asks if she'll miss him. And she says, of course she'll miss him and can't believe he'll be leaving in a week. She then asks if there's anything she can do while she says whilst, but we'll allow it because it's 1922 (laughs) Uh, whilst he's in Munich. He says that he has some kind of limited power of attorney. He wants her to sign, which she does without like really reading it. Yeah, She spends about half a second looking it over and then it's like oh, all right well uh as was pointed out by our friends at downton gabby and several other people on twitter uh she's clearly inherited her father's business sense <laughs> right so she asks what gregson's going to do in munich he says he thinks he'll uh try to write a novel since he'll have nothing but time i guess he must be pretty well off if he can just yeah. gallivant over there and clearly uh hang out edith wants to know how long he'll be says he's not sure but the lawyers are optimistic edith says she thought lawyers were never optimistic and gregson says that's why it's a good sign so edith asks if they're going out and rose had been talking about the lotus club Mm -hmm. i bet she was i bet she was and gregson says that actually he hadn't planned on going anywhere uh so they kiss and edith is like super on board with this plan yeah it's happening people i also like i mean yes it's uh, ominous that she didn't read that thing before signing it. But, like, what is it? 
Yeah. Like, even if, if it's a villainous plan, like, what does it say? Like, I don't think it's a villainous plan that's going to happen. I think it's just going to be some bullshit. This certifies that the undersigned is a hoe. <laughs> oh, also, Edith is wearing a bomb-ass arm cuff in this scene. That is true. And a really great dress. Yeah. Which brings us to our resident marital maven, <laughs> uh, Tom Schneider, telling us what the dealio was with divorce back in 1922. Hey, it's Tom Repeats History. Thank you. I'm Tom. <laughs> um, what? Yeah. So I, I did some research on this. I had actually sort of intended to look into what it was like in other countries as well, but I had difficulty finding it. I mean, it's easy to find out what divorce law is like in the present day in uh-huh. these countries, but it was just kind of a hassle and nothing was interesting that I found. Uh, so just sort of a, a little coverage of the history of marriage and divorce law in England. Um, of course, it started out going you know way back in the day. It was all just the church's law um, and... The church has always, of course, held the doctrine that a marriage cannot be dissolved. However, there was always difficulty defining when a marriage had happened. Uh, back in the day, and this is like the 1200s, they decided that there was no ceremony official, uh, no official ceremony was needed. All you needed was to speak sort of the words of marriage in the present tense. This was specified. Or to say it in the future tense, to promise to get married and then later consummate it. So if you had sex without having made a promise, and that was just fornication, if you had previously promised and then you had sex, at that point you were married. If you make it completely technical, that is still true in the Catholic religion. Okay. And interestingly, they they very much encouraged people to have an, a public church ceremony, but private ceremonies were actually quite common in the Middle Ages. Like that one painting. Mm, yeah. I forget what it's called, but it's like the two people getting married and there's right, the mirror and right. you can like see them in it and stuff. And yeah. no, I, people I, I, give a shit about that painting. <laughs> yes, I know what you mean. Uh, but I mean, the impression I got was like private, even to the extent of like almost secret marriage mm-hmm. um, was, was pretty common. Um, I want to have a secret marriage. Well, I'm sorry. I know that ship has pretty much sailed at this point. Yeah. But well, and the other thing about that is that the, the, the thing about the present tense words being a marriage meant that consummation at that point technically was not required. I hear. And that was partly because people kept wondering about the fact that if consummation is required for marriage, that means Jesus' parents were never actually married. Oh. Yeah. So that was a theological conundrum that they were wrestling with. I'm so glad someone invented TV. (laughs) Um. So, yeah, there were all kinds of ways to get an annulment uh, because marriages have broken up all throughout history. So if there had been a previous clandestine marriage or or even just a previous uh, promise uh, or if you were suddenly found out that you were related within whatever degree, uh, most of the through most of history, the degree has been the fourth degree, which equates to first cousin. Um, but for a while, there were a couple centuries where it was actually to the seventh degree which meant that it was hard to find people mm-hmm. that you were not that closely related to. How do you think they would have handled the flowers in the attic type situation? Uh, the same way that the the grandmother and the flowers in the attic handled it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and that's actually throughout the history of, you know, uh, royal marriages. You know, they were all always, you know, that closely oh, related. Yeah. And so they always had to get the Pope's permission. Yeah, so you'd really think 
the fact grandmother in Flowers of the Attic would have been a bit more of a student of history. <laughs> Clearly she was not. <laughs> so yeah, uh, in 1753 in England, they uh, pushed through a bill that required a formal church wedding. But this actually really made divorce easier to get or annulment easier to get because the requirements for a formal church ceremony as specified in this law were very precise. And so it was always easy to go back after the fact and find some little detail that hadn't been done according to the official ceremony, thus annulling the marriage. Rich people at this point started seeking divorces, uh, which they could get by passing a private bill in Parliament. Obviously, most people just didn't have access to anybody that could get a special bill passed just for them. That started, like, just having to do it in this special way every time started to get tiresome. And so in 1857, they finally took jurisdiction away from the church. Uh, and the grounds for divorce at this point were that if you were a man, you could get divorced for adultery. And adultery was really kind of, you know, the basis for any divorce. Uh, if you were a man, you could get divorced for adultery. But if you were a woman, you needed adultery plus some other factor, such as cruelty or rape. Bullshit. It, indeed it was. Well, we knew that already, actually, because of the Vera Bates situation. Right. Yeah, and and it's, I mean, and this really, the law that, as of 1853, is not substantially different from the law that Downton Abbey mm-hmm. is operating under at this point. Uh, another interesting quirk, if both of you had committed adultery, you couldn't get a divorce. <laughs> because the idea was... That's amazing. A divorce was only something to rescue an innocent party from a malevolent party. So if both of you had committed adultery, there was no divorce. Um, I now pronounce you swingers. <laughs> indeed. Or if... Uh, there was evidence that they had colluded to get the divorce. Then the divorce. Oh, that they had made up some lies. Right. Or just both like wanted it. I mean, honestly. Yeah. And then also in any divorce, uh, it would, even after it was approved, they would issue what was called a decree nisi, which was basically a six month waiting period before the divorce became final. And if at any point in that, the, innocent party and the divorce was found in any sort of compromising situation the divorce would be ungranted once again i remember that phrase specifically from mr bates's divorce proceedings with vera yeah and so that again was a pretty old school thing in 1912 the gorel commission had recommended reforming all this and they they pointed to a lot of things you know the fact you couldn't get a divorce for abandonment and so they would talk to people you know some you know, working class woman in London whose husband had left her seven years ago. She had mm-hmm. no idea where he was or if he was alive or dead and hadn't seen him since and had started living with somebody else and had kids by him. And they were as, you know, they were living a perfectly stable married life, but they could never legally be married. And so her children would always be, be bastards. bastards. Yeah. But the commission report a was super controversial. Um, they couldn't even get like a unanimous, report recommending reform out of the commission um and then was introduced into parliament like the day before world war one so nothing happened and uh nothing did happen until 1937 oh my god yeah this is all still the the same rules until then and actually what's credited with finally getting people to change was a book called holy deadlock that was basically a satire of the situation that's amazing i love that title yeah, and one basically the way that people would generally do it, it was called the hotel something, the hotel scheme or whatever, mm-hmm. where the husband would find some random woman 
who was you know willing to help them out, go to a hotel with her, be very publicly walking around yeah. with her, make sure that when the maid came in in the morning, the maid saw them in the same bed. Mm-hmm. Then they would go to the divorce. The maid would, wit- you know, be called as a witness to say, you know, and so on. And it just led to all sorts of ridiculous situations yeah. that were satirized in this book, pointing out that, you know, in order to get divorced, you had to commit adultery. In mm-hmm. order to be, you know, to keep up virtue, they were forcing people <laughs> yeah, to, to, sin. To, to sin. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. Boy, two books I want to read from this podcast. No, I know. That one was pretty interesting. And by the way, I, it didn't what I was reading didn't specify all these many specific requirements of a church ceremony back in the day, but I did stumble across one of them, which is that it was prohibited to marry between 6 PM and 8 AM. Well, okay. Yeah. Boring. Yeah. So you could get an annulment because you had gotten married at seven at night. (laughs) Hmm. Good to know. Yeah. Well, thank God marriage law is so much less stupid now. Yeah. Even today in England, there's no no fault divorce. Mm-hmm. Like you know, basically what it is now is um, oh, I forget the term they use. It's not irreconcilable differences, but it's like unconscionable behavior or mm-hmm. something like that. And so that'll that'll basically be the grounds they allege, and everybody just pretends that you know yeah. it happened. Well, thank you, Tom, for repeating that history. <laughs> You're welcome. Back at Downton, we're back in Hughes's parlor. And uh, Anna asks if she can move back in since Edna's room is going to be empty. And Anna has twice as much work upstairs now. And Mrs. Hughes says that if that's what she really wants. But Carson is also there, so that limits what she can say. And I'm sure Anna's planned this to Mm -hmm. an extent. Anna leaves, and Carson says that he was sorry to hear about Edna. Not that he cared much for her, but he's sorry for McGee. And Mrs. Hughes says that one of these days she'll fill Carson in. But anyway, they shouldn't have let her back in the house at all. Which is certainly true. So then Mrs. Hughes gives Carson a present for his desk. It is a picture frame. Carson makes asks her what made her think of it, and she says it will be good for uh, Carson and the staff to know that he belongs to the human race. It's a picture of Alice. Right. It's yeah. It's, dead it, old dead Alice. Right. When she was young, alive Alice. <laughs> right. In a nice new frame. Carson says that it looks expensive. Uh, it may have been because again, apparently these servants have unlimited disposable income. <laughs> right. But Mrs. Hughes agrees that Alice was pretty, and she says that she's sure she was very nice, and now he can remember her. Carson says that Mrs. Hughes is right. The business of life is the acquisition of memories. He thanks her, and then I punch him in the nads. Right. And we never hear about Anna again. Or not Anna. uh, Alice. Alice. Yeah. Yeah. See? We already forgot what her name was. (laughs) Right. Great. Uh, In Lord Grantham's room, Lord Grantham asks asks Bates if he knows what the deal was with Edna, which he doesn't. Uh, and Lord Grantham hopes that it's not too much work for Anna, and Bates does not respond. And Lord Grantham is like, so what's going on, man? And Bates tells Lord Grantham that Anna is going to move back into the house. Lord Grantham asks if something is wrong between them, and Bates says that there is, but he doesn't know what it is. That Anna tells him that it's not him, but he cannot believe that because Anna is incapable of fault. Which is also not a healthy attitude to have in a marriage, right. but we're going to let it slide right we, now. We will, yes. Uh, and he says he doesn't know what to do. And Lord Grantham says that there's no such thing as a marriage between two intelligent people. How would he know, eh? <laughs> uh, that doesn't sometimes uh, you know, have a patches of thin ice. Uh, and he says that he has to wait for things until things become clear and that they will. And that uh, the damage cannot be irreparable for two people that love each other as much as they do. And then he 
like sort of shakes himself a bit and says, "My goodness, that was strong talk for an Englishman." Why is Lord Grantham the voice of reason in this episode? I know. How is this happening? He continues to be. He's giving this excellent, you know, advice, and I smell the work of Lucifer. <laughs> We see Edith stocking feet tiptoeing up the stairs at Rosamond's, and some servant sees her. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. So it's a walk of shame time. Yeah. She really could have uh, handled some of that Lady Wicklow or whoever it was <laughs> ringing the bell. Indeed. Getting her in. Yep. Before the servants started working. It's too late. They've seen mm-hmm. everything. <laughs> uh, Gilly and Mary. Fucking Gilly. They're wandering the moors or whatever, uh, and he doesn't want to go back, but he must. After he gets Mary's answer. Which he did totally say she could give to him way later, except for right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to promise to marry me now. You have to promise to marry me in three years now. <laughs> um, I would have just said that. Well, except she does seem to like Miss Lane Fox and doesn't want to drag her into this bullshit. Well, that's true. But Mary says that, you know, she doesn't want to, she can't be rushed into it. Uh, but Gilly says that he won't, you know, it needs to make a decision now because otherwise he'll be making a fool of Mabel. Uh, that if he was going to marry Mary, uh, that he would break up with her and give her the credit of being able to understand. Uh, also, haven't you already made a fool of her by falling in love with somebody else and like racing back to her house at very like uncouth times? Yeah, and like you already they're like like you apparently had plans with her that you canceled and then we're like oh also by the way i'm leaving london tomorrow to uh, go see this lady for reasons <laughs> business reasons <laughs> <laughs> yeah um anyway mary can't is not going to marry him uh, she hasn't gotten over matthew yet obviously this is never going to happen yeah this is now day 4 right after 6 months and so, 4 days the dumbest marriage proposal has failed um <laughs> But he asks one last favor. He wants to kiss her because he's never loved anyone or never will love anyone as much as he loves her right there. Uh, and they kiss. Mr. Pamuk had a better elevator pitch than this. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he, he's gone. And, you know, I hope he's gone. He's not, though, because his valet raped Anna. And that's going to definitely come back and bite Th- us in the ass. That's true. Well, I hope his wooing is over. I think his wooing has to be over. Although my question is, why did this even happen? Right. Like, yeah, like that's it, this. Like, why is this completely self-contained plot wrapping up so early on a soap opera? Like, was the whole reason to get the shot of them kissing to put in various promotional material? Probably. I think it was. Yeah. In the front hall, Thomas flags down Lord Grantham and says that if Edna's not coming back, he has a candidate for the position of lady's maid. <gasps> it's the zombie corpse of O'Brien. <laughs> He's been hiding it in that shed <laughs> where he stashed ISIS that time. My theory, Vera Bates. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Lord Grantham says that he should talk to McGee, but he has no objection. Which, like, you don't know anything about this. <laughs> right. Thomas says that his candidate is a little older than Edna, and Branson happens by and says, oh, that won't hurt for no reason. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, Lord Grantham is like, what? And he's like, oh, she definitely didn't bang me. That's not why she left. <laughs> Uh, Mary comes in. Don't have in. a fetish for ladies' maids, if that's what you mean. <laughs> sexy, sexy ladies' maids <laughs> with their bangs and their faces and their witch hats. <laughs> Mary comes in to the front hall and Lord Grantham asks where Gilly is. Uh, he's, he's gone. He wanted to catch the train and presumably masturbate in third class <laughs> to the memory of that kiss. 
Mary asks Branson if he's ready and tells Lord Grantham they're going to York for estimates to re-equip the small, the sawmill. Branson asks if they'll be seeing Gilly again, and Mary says, sure. And oh, by the way, she hears he's getting engaged to Mabel Lane Fox. Yeah. So everyone, like, exchanges significant glances. Yeah. And but it's just frustrating, too, that this seems like Mary was the sort of victim here. Like, the way, sort of the way uh, she says well, that. Look, they're all dicks. Yeah, that's true. They don't. There's no point. Look, Mary. They, you know what? Tom, are you team Mary or not? That, Mary no. don't give a fuck. No, I know. That's my point. My point is that she, I feel like they feel like she's sad about it. Right, but my point is she don't care how they oh. feel about how she feels. Good point. Like, I think she made that perfectly clear in the premiere. No, that's that's an excellent point, and you're right. Uh, so Edith is shown into Rosamond's drawing room, or whatever room at her place, uh, and Rosamond tells her that she doesn't look too bad for somebody who only got two hours of sleep. <gasps> no! <laughs> Yeah, the uh, maid totally ratted Edith out. What a shit maid. Yeah, come on, maid. Come on, maid. You're a bitch. Yeah. Rosamond asks what kept her out that late, and Edith is like, uh, 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 and Rosamond is like, shut up. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was married once. Right. For a day, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, She tells Edith that she is taking a great risk trusting Gregson with her name and her reputation. Which, uh, you know, it's only the two of you that know at this point. So yeah, so maybe you're the one who's taking a risk, Rosamond. Mm-hmm. Unless she's concerned that somebody saw her, like, coming back in a cab. Right, but... which I guess is conceivable on this show. But, I mean, maybe again, the Turkish ambassador saw we her. We are talking about Edwardian England here. Yeah. Post-war True. now. I mean... Things aren't completely lax, but they are very different. That's Like, that's the difference true. between Mary's virtue being damaged... Back in series one, and Edith's, you know, right. past its sell by date virtue being damaged at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a gulf of difference yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, Edith says that it's all right. Uh, she does trust Gregson because he wants to marry her. And Rosamond says, as you trusted Sir Anthony Strallen. Which is totally irrelevant. Yeah, that is a completely different situation. And also mean, mm-hmm. as Edith That's points out. straight up mean. Yeah. Uh, and asks if Rosamond will tell McGee. And Rosamond says, no, she's not a spy, but she just wants Edith to know that she's gambling with her future and that she knows things are changing, but not everything is going to change. Uh, Edith says that she's not a bit sorry. And Rosamond says that she doesn't look sorry, but she may feel sorry later, and she heads out. I hope Edith has picked up a copy of Married Love by Marie Stopes. Uh, as do I. Or Gregson has. Yeah. Well, he seems pretty... Well, they'd have to be charting and doing all that stuff. Anyway, look. (laughs) Shows never get into the nitty-gritty of birth control like I want them to. I know, baby. They never do. I know. It's not fair. I know. Well, except for Call the Midwife a little bit. A little bit, But, I mean, that's more about having the babies than preventing the babies. Yeah. If there was... (laughs) If they really got into birth control on Call the Midwife, the whole show would be over. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Uh, Branson and Mary head out to the car. Mary says that Branson seems cheerful and he says he took her advice and his problem has gone away. Uh, Mary envies him because she fears she may regret turning Gilly down for a long time to come. No. no it's like, hard why to are see. you even saying that? Yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't that great. Uh, so then they pull out and they drive past the nannies pushing the babies. Well, the prams anyway. Right. They don't see the babies. And then they drive off into the future. <laughs> Indeed. So that was a pretty solid episode. It was, yeah. I, uh, I've really felt, I've, you know, again, 
only halfway through or whatever, but I've certainly enjoyed this season more than last season. Absolutely. Well, when you don't have to shoehorn in all these weird character deaths and departures. Well, that's true. It just makes everything a lot easier yeah. to, to deal with. Yeah. I mean, in the sense that Julian's story is, that Julian Fellows is capable of creating a coherent story, this is significantly better right. than it was last time. Yeah. Yeah. Which brings us now to the Abbey Awards. Hooray! Uh, so first we've got our uh, award for Best Evasion. And uh, we considered a few things here in this one, but we eventually decided that the clear winner was the babies. Yeah. Where are they? They have evaded earthly existence. Yeah. I'm. I'm. Are they ghost babies? Right. What's going on with them? Are they cute ghost babies? Oh, my God. A ghost baby would be so cute because it would stay a baby. <laughs> That's true. Uh Worst decision goes to Edna Braithwaite for thinking she could go up against Mrs. Hughes. Right. What? No. Shot yeah, down. Clearly not. None. You've already failed to go up against Mrs. Hughes before. <sighs> no. Uh, glutton for punishment, that yeah, one. Yeah. Best overbite? Uh, that one's going to go to Aunt Rosamond, who about overbited her face off at the sight of jack ross i don't know what happens when you over overbite but uh do you underbite is it like you know it, it a, goes, like a double negative <laughs> <laughs> you go so far over that it's an underbite like into your neck i don't know wow anyway we've gone too far we have we've over overbitten ourselves <laughs> yes uh our gibson girls actually the dowager countess we didn't even mention you, no, it no that's oh true. my god she was wearing this amazing hat when yeah. she was talking to isabel in the churchyard yeah that was gorgeous that looked like some old world like medici hat right but she was also totally rocking it yeah and she also had a really lovely blue dress that she was wearing uh during dinner yes uh, when she was complaining about lloyd george yeah was- so <laughs> really really well done to the dowager countess lloyd george would have hated that dress he probably would have yeah that's true uh, on the flip side, we come to the Fashion Backwards Award for Backwards Fashion, a.k.a. the Backy. Uh, the Backy this week goes to Rose, and that's also we didn't talk about it, but uh, in, it's a shame because we loved her sweater at the beginning, oh, as we said. Oh, that sweater, she was, she was the front runner. I was like, yeah. that sweater is so fabulous. I want it. She's winning. Yeah. But then they went out to the jazz club, and she wore Lavinia's St. Uh, Patrick's Day Massacre <laughs> Redux. Right. And I was like, oh, my God. And yeah. was, the cut was unflattering. The color washed her out. Yeah. It was horrible. It just, and she spent most of the time that we saw her in this episode in that outfit. Right. So, um, uh, sorry, Rose. Better luck next time. Indeed. Then we have cutest baby. Again, absent the babies. We decided it was uh, Tony Gillingham. Yeah. Very attractive man. Emotional maturity of a two-year-old. Yeah. Boo. Yeah. Very much boo. And finally, everybody's favorite award. The Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths. Uh, and, eh, you know, yeah. a two. She wasn't around. I mean, she did some stuff, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't fun. Yeah, she it wasn't was mainly sassy. being, like, nice and sympathetic. She had that, that is, line about the rompers, which lifted her out of the one territory. Right, but right. But still, uh, she needs to up her game. Yeah, mostly she was just being a kindly old woman. Which yeah, is, which is not, you know, it's fine, but it's not her strong suit. Yeah. You know, yeah. we want we want a little bit more spit and vinegar from her. <laughs> That's right. So, Mags, we hope you step it up next week. Here, here. Uh, that's been our recap for today. Indeed. So until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs, downstairs, luncheon out. Luncheon out.